Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to Cinematic Universe. The podcast that does for comic book movies what Tom Hardy does for speaking with your friends over your mouth. Sorry. Uh, I'm Sir Patrick, and joining me to Adopt to the Darkness are... <laughs> James Hunt. Sam Clements. And Simon Renshaw. Yes, we're double-guesting it. Uh, we, with this being the first episode uh, after Joe's uh, stepping down as permanent host of the show, uh, we thought we'd better roll a big one out. So we have wanted for ages to get Sam and Simon on together to talk about The Dark Knight Rises. Um, it's a really big film. This is going to be a really big podcast. Um, <laughs> Sam and Simon, hello. For those who don't know, do you guys want to explain a little bit about who you are and where people might know you from or where they should know you from if they don't already? Sam, you go for it. Uh, Simon and I originally reviewed this film back in 2012 for the Picture House podcast, which we recorded for a number of years together. Um, so you may know our voices from the internet. Also, probably generally just faffing around on Twitter and Instagram and things. And most recently, you may have heard Simon on the 90 Minutes or Less podcast, uh, a podcast I host about films under 90 minutes long. Simon was guest number one on that show. And he picked an excellent film. Shouldn't it be called 90 Minutes or Fewer? Well, right, you're not the first person here, James. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) You are correct. But it doesn't sound as good, does it? The best kind of correct. I'm happy with that. <laughs> I'll put you on the, the long list of people who have said that to me. <laughs> I'm always glad to be original. The long the long list of people who are banned from appearing on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, uh, Sam and Simon are here to uh, talk with us about uh, Christopher Nolan's 2012 film, The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, we'll also, before that, take a run through some of the latest comic book movie and TV news, uh, one item of which I'm sure will have become massively out of date by the time we actually get the episode released. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Sam and Simon if they, as film-talking guys, have something about the world of comics that they would like to have explained by me or James because they don't understand it, whether that's something to do with a character, something to do with publication, something to do with the history, anything about comics that baffles you two that you'd like to know more about that me and James, as as expert comic book people, can tell you. What is it? Okay, I've got a question. 
My question is, it's it's an oddly specific question, and it's not a, 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 a broad-ranging question. I had always assumed, it's actually Dark Knight Rises, well, it's, it's, it's Nolan trilogy, Batman-specific. I'd always assumed that it was Rachel Ghoul. And then I, re- I really remember, I can't remember who the first person it is who says Raz in Begins, um, but I, I definitely remember Killian Murphy's uh, delivery on it. But I, it just struck a bum note with me. It's always been Raish in my head. Am I wrong? Are they right? That's my question. Uh, as I understand it, they are wrong and you are right. Yes! But I agree with them. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> why? Um, I mean, well, I've I've always, whenever I've read Batman comics with that character in, I've always read his name as Ra's al Ghul because okay. that's what it looks like. Yeah, uh, I didn't know that there is that it was a name with a specific pronunciation, which is Raish. Um, how and did, how his, did I know that? I don't know how. It's, you, that's uh, how I think, you're obviously smarter than me. I think it's. Um, is he in the that Batman movie, the animated one everyone loves? Mask of the Phantasm. Uh, Mask of the Phantasm. I don't know if he's in Mask of the Phantasm, but he was in the cartoon. Yeah, and the cartoon so did there's use definitely, that There's definitely an animated version that uses it. And also, I think the uh, Arkham games call him Rachel Ghoul. Yes, okay. and I think that's where... I think that's where and why the whole debate came up. Like, I don't remember people debating it heavily when Batman Begins came out. I remember people debating it after the Arkham games had come out and then when Dark Knight Rises came out because the Arkham games went with Raish. Denny O'Neill, who, who co-created him, does does say that it's Raish, although okay. I don't think there was ever a point where in the comics he would have made that clear or explicit, you know, on an editorial page. I mean, aside from the fact that um, it's an actual Arabic word. <laughs> well, yes. But apparently, well, no, apparently there is actually, there is an Arabic pronunciation, which is which is Rahus, okay. and there is a Hebrew pronunciation, which is Raish. And it's the Hebrew pronunciation that... Denny O'Neill says should be the intended pronunciation. I'm so not Ra's picking a side in that fight, to be from honest. Nowhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't come from nowhere, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the films... On the one hand, I feel like the films probably should have gone with what the established canon was for the character. Yeah. Uh, but equally, in my head, I've always pronounced it the way that the films do. Yeah, so but I don't, don't, don't you also pronounce way. it Professor Xavier when it's clearly Professor Xavier? Yeah, I pronounce it Professor Xavier because that's how the name Xavier is pronounced. <laughs> yeah, but he's not—he's not Professor <laughs> <Or> Xavier. Xavier. <laughs> he's not he's Professor Xavier. <laughs> Professor Xavier. That sounds yeah. lovely. Redo <laughs> the X Men films, guys. <laughs> well, I genuinely appreciate the time they got reading. Kevin Feige's got the chance. <laughs> thank you for that answer. I am almost certainly picked it up from the animated series in that case, but. Uh, Genuinely appreciate you unpicking my childhood mind. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't really have a question about uh, stuff from comics that then makes it into films. It was more the other way around because the Nolan films were so inspirational to just people because they've been ripped off by people making video games, <laughs> other movies, not necessarily superhero films. Has anything from the Nolan films worked its way back into comics? Ooh. I so, I mean, we've we've talked before, actually. When we did The Dark Knight, we mentioned that the version of Joker seen in The Dark Knight with the heavy scarring is... Mm. Ki- that was kind of new, a uh, sort of new depiction of the Joker, and that ended up in some comics, certainly. 
Yeah, I think it is. I don't think there's... Because there are some usually minor characters that these films have created that are original. I don't think any of those have made it in, but I think you're right. I think interpretations, like that interpretation of the Joker, and I think increased focus. So, for example, Lucius Fox has been around in comics for years. Like, I think he first showed up in the 70s, maybe. I don't recall ever reading a comic with Lucius Fox in it from the era that I read Batman comics, which is like late 80s through the 90s and early 2000s. I had never seen a comic with Lucius Fox in it until Batman Begins came out. And then all of a sudden, he's this really <laughs> integral figure in the Enterprises okay. again. So there's there's definitely influence in that sense. I think as well, I'll tell you another thing. I Again, with Alfred... Like the way that I remember Alfred, I'm sure he was described as having had a military background, but the thing that they always played up more in the comics was the fact that he used to be an actor, and that was the thing that kind of went into his character and how he was and everything. But again, ever since Michael Caine, this whole thing of Alfred was an ex special forces guy who then became a butler, that has come much more to the fore in his background. I can't wait to discuss Alfred in this movie. Oh, Christ. <laughs> we find out Alfred's military history through his uh, story about the Tangerine, don't we? Oh, God, that Tangerine <laughs> story. It's the best thing in the trilogy. Absolutely. 100%. So, so funny. Almost entirely inconsequential. Yeah. I mean, just such flowery bollocks. I love it. Five stars. <sighs> Hopefully we've cast a, a little bit of light on a an uh, an otherwise obscure, dark corner. Oh, on a, a, yeah, the the obscure corner of comics that is the Batman universe. <laughs> for the pair of you there, uh, we'll we'll move on now to discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news. Um, and there is one story which is dominating the conversation, uh, certainly over the last twenty four hours. Uh, we're recording this just uh, so you understand for, uh, on Wednesday the twenty first <laughs> of August. Uh, by the time you hear this episode, an awful lot might have changed in regards to this story we're very so aware we'll... that d23 is happening at the weekend yeah <laughs> and this episode isn't going to come out before then because uh, i'm going away so um let's what we'll do is we'll recap where things are at at the time that we're recording and we'll discuss them as they are now and as we think they may go but if this all changes and we are completely wrong and we're talking about something that's been completely resolved and why the hell would you want to carry on talking about that a week after it's happened then sorry just spin on to the next bit so ages ago there were three matrix movies (laughs) (laughs) no there weren't there was only one um we will come to that but no so basically spider-man as it stands is depending on which reports you read either not going to be in the mcu anymore at all or is going to kind of still be in the MCU but his own films will have nothing to do with Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios and it's all because of negotiations over money slash producer credits slash well lots of things so uh, how do we feel about that? I don't care <laughs> you're going to say that Simon. that's a bold but... choice with this podcast but I'm interested to hear but you do, you-, you do know what this podcast's about, right? <laughs> no, 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 wait. Hear me out. What I would, <laughs> my vision for the future is that every studio gets a year on Spider-Man. Every studio, right? <laughs> and you, no one can have the same actor playing Spider-Man. You have to have a new actor playing Spider-Man every single time. Everyone has one year to make a film, and then every year we get a new Spider-Man film. That's what I want. 
I'm and, just trying to imagine Zack Snyder's Spider-Man and feeling physically ill. Snyder-Man. Release the Snyder cut. <laughs> yeah. just, just for putting that, that image in my head, you're sacked from the podcast. <laughs> Executive decision. Um, actually, what I would prefer to add on top of my original idea is that the first studio who has it uh, makes the first film, and the second studio, that second film becomes part of a shared universe with the first film, and each <laughs> new Spider-Man film is part of a new Spider-Man universe, and then we're getting like so it's kind of Spider-Man. like a Spider-Verse. <laughs> <laughs> um, I th- I agree- I'm giving myself the green light on that one, guys. Uh, it's, it's a shame we don't have a pitch segment anymore because <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's. It's interesting this soap opera, which has become like comic book movie news, because like no other, uh, maybe bar like Star Wars or James Bond, like franchises are discussed like this, like the 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 it's like um, football news. Or I was just going to say it know? is. It's it's like it's like football yeah. transfer news. It's like right. this this tribalism and this team supporting yeah, that's yeah, made yeah. its way into movie fandom is now extending to this behind-the-scenes stuff, and it is absolutely like Sky Sports News on Transfer Deadline Day. Exactly. A transfer's fallen through, or a manager's been sacked. or Yeah, you know. there's a lot of emphasis on actors' contracts, surprisingly, for the, sure. you know, just the Marvel Universe, not anything else. But surely, yeah. I mean, it's like, because it dominates the news, like, all of the press departments in the studios are, are keeping these franchises alive between the two- and three-year gaps with all of the soap opera. So I don't know. We're playing into their hands, guys. Oh no, it's not. It's not like it's not like sport. It's like wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> it's all an act. Uh, it's sort of like we're going to get letters, James. You said wrestling, not sport. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is kind of sort of bigish news. But at the end of the day, we're still going to get a load of MCU films, and we'll still get a load of Spider-Man films. Yes. So it, it doesn't really change it for people. It's not like we're we're banning the character Spider-Man. He can no longer be seen on screen. <laughs> I think there is, though, you know, from, from Spider-Man fans, I think because there was this enormous sense of relief that we had Spider-Man films that weren't the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man films, and we had Spider-Man films that that weren't following on from the material in those leaked emails, which, okay, they're leaked emails, we shouldn't have seen them, so we shouldn't we shouldn't judge anything based on things that didn't happen that we read about in leaked emails. But even so, it is hard to shake from your mind the feeling of, Sony, if left unchecked, that is what they do to Spider-Man. And we got some films that, while, you know, some people would say they're not perfect... Joe on Far From Home. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, I think everyone, or at least a significant majority of people who are fans of Spider-Man and of Marvel, were pretty happy with the situation that we had. And now we're back into a corridor of uncertainty. And, you know, we don't know what... If you know if it is the case that this doesn't get resolved, and I, I think it probably will get resolved, to be yeah. honest... Um, but if it doesn't, we don't know what shape the next Spider-Man films will take. And as people who want to see good Spider-Man films and want to see the things that were being set up in those films carried on, it'll be disappointing if we don't get to see that. I suppose so. But also, I think um, I think that Spider-Man's big link in the MCU was Iron Man, right? And Tony's gone. And so I feel... I feel sort of totally fine about uh, the brave new dawn of of solo Spidey films, and and that's it. I mean, I'm I don't feel like there's any love lost for me there, but I understand that I'm almost certainly. Yeah, the see, my my feeling is that 
I would be more upset about this if the Spider-Man films we had were crap. Were were the well, in that if it if they were the best version of Spider-Man, I'd oh, be upset okay. that we were potentially losing it. Yeah, I, it I still think Raimi's version is probably a more definitive screen Spider-Man. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, in a and heartbeat. like Tom Holland has been great in the MCU. I think he'll be great outside the MCU. I don't think we're going to lose too much just from from not having Spider-Man in the Avengers, especially because, like, Feige's just got the Fantastic Four and X-Men and, you know, Ghost Rider or whatever back. So sure. there's plenty of, of nerd fun to have yeah, to be absolutely. had still. I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that, uh, that yeah, I, I don't, I don't mind about him potentially not being in the Avengers because as it is, if I have a my biggest problem with the treatment of Spider-Man in the MCU is him becoming an Avenger so quickly. <laughs> um, and I and you know James and I, I've seen you say and I, and I definitely agree that you know uh, uh, Spider-Man is a character who you you do kind of it's not that you necessarily you don't want him to exist in a universe with any other superheroes because there's so much fun to be had playing him off other characters, but equally, you know you i think he is weakened if he is just one of a number of big high profile heroes yeah so the the, the core idea of spider-man is that he has the power so he has the responsibility and if there are a, a team of avengers out there who have a lot of power and are happy to shoulder that responsibility it, it takes things away from spider-man because he can have a day off and things will still get taken care of yeah 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 so in in that way it weakens the core idea of spider-man I, I and yeah, as I, that I don't dispute, and I think that's why my my issue with this is less yeah that that idea of you know oh, I desperately want him to be involved in all the Avengers stuff, and I want MCU references in all of his films. Although, <laughs> what I will just say as an aside is that I think this is an interesting counterpoint to how we talked about the news of him coming into the MCU in the first <laughs> yeah. place several years ago. Right. Um, but no, I mean my, my issue just is just purely more from a creative quality point of view. You know, it's not like I think you know Kevin Feige is the is this magic magician who's the only person who can make these things good. <laughs> Although it sort of is. Well, yeah, I'm just kind of concerned that without him, where is the hand on the tiller that makes sure that these films don't culminate in Spider-Man murdering yeah, a mentally ill? It's person? from the creative geniuses who brought you Venom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that stuff. Uh, I certainly won't be, and I. Th- and the reason that I'm not is because there's always, t- you know, always brand new writers, always brand new voices coming to the fore. Like, it doesn't necessarily need a, 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 a Kevin steady hand at the tiller. I, I think, uh, I think we can trust the wise creative gods of the future to bring us uh spidey fun that is much too optimistic for this podcast but. <laughs> <laughs> the thing i'm a little bit upset by the probably the like genuinely is i i quite like going to theme parks and i know at Disneyland <laughs> they're getting ready with lots of new marvel rides so are they now is there someone who's built this amazing spider-man ride who is now having to like tear it down or, or turn it into like i don't know like a ghost rider ride or something instead <laughs> I mean, Marvel still own the character, so as long as it's not a movie version of Spider-Man, it's not. You know, Spider-Man is a still a Marvel character who is, and he is owned by Disney. It's just, it's just movie rights, isn't it? Are Disney so, stores yeah. currently burning all of their Tom Holland action figures? <laughs> <laughs> they put out a lot of. I was in a Disney store around Christmas, and there was an awful lot of Spider-Man stuff in there. All of a sudden, yeah, it makes perfect sense. They love money, guys. They love money. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, they do, never. and that and that's you know the root of the issue. I'm I'm getting a little bit annoyed by people who 
are pa- who are commenting on the discussion around this. It's like you can, uh, you know, uh, you can want Spider-Man to be involved in the MCU films and think that that's a good thing without it meaning that you're happy with Disney having a cultural monopoly and people getting put out of work when Disney buy other companies and sure. that kind of thing. It's like it's not a binary it's, it's like possible. That. Exactly, it's not a binary thing. And I'm just kind of I've been accused quite a lot of of shilling for Disney recently on Twitter, and it's getting annoying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially because the, especially because like they're not Disney. actually paying us yet. Yeah, well, I yeah, was going to exactly. say, if they are paying you 25 grand a year, then you will have to take that shit on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah, but, but it comes, you know, but it does, it comes back to that, it's that tribalism thing that, you know, uh, you know, oh, you must defend Disney at all costs. Well, it's like, <laughs> no, I just, there's just a few specific things where I would rather that they did something. But yeah, anyway. Oh. Um, moving on to uh, uh, an area where fan arguments and, and tribalism have never been a problem. Uh <laughs> The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I've been enjoying some of the people who are, who are having the sort of, hey, the sequels aren't that bad kind of justifications on, on Twitter in the wake of this news because they, they, they are that bad. I was going to say, um, I'm, I'm someone who can't stand those Matrix sequels, but I am so ready for a fourth Matrix film. Yes. Yeah. So I will be first Matrix in line. Film. And it is, it's not, it's not, I mean, we, you know, we talked about this possibility because we, you know, we, we did a Matrix episode only very recently, episode 99, go back and have a listen. It's a really good episode with Claire Napier. Um, but I think we were sort of talking about, would there be a possibility that either the Wachowskis or somebody else might do something new in that universe, you know, whether, whether a kind of reboot, whether, you know, a sequel with different characters, a reimagining or whatever, but no, they are literally doing a sequel. So Lana Wachowski is writing and directing The Matrix 4 with Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. And David Mitchell's writing the screenplay. So, well, he's co-writing. Uh, not the peep show, David Mitchell, no. I presume. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Very yes. much Cloud Atlas, which is, <laughs> yes. for me, yeah. a, a massive Cloud Atlas fan. The most exciting thing. Um, I could not be more excited for this film. I love what I love about the Wachowskis. <laughs> and always have done, and I think Sam agrees with me on this, is their pure ambition. Like, Cloud Atlas is a $100 million, three-hour art house movie, right? It has no right to exist, (laughs) and yet it does. And even when they fail, even when we get Jupiter Ascending, it doesn't matter. The ambition of ideas writ large on the screen is so exciting. I, I say the same thing about the Matrix sequels as well. There's loads of shit in those films, and I give most of it a free pass because we don't get filmmakers like that very often, and it's so exciting when they get to make films. Like, with Cloud Atlas, they sold houses and car. They had lots of uh, the financing fall through, and they got rid of stuff that they own in order to get that film over the line. And... I just love them and I love everything about them. And even if it's a hunk of shit, I won't care. I'll <laughs> defend it to the hilt. Uh, and I'm very happy to die on a Wachowski hill because I just love them. Love them. Love I them, do. Them. I do always enjoy an interesting failure as much as a genuinely yeah. good movie. So yeah, yeah. Like, I'm with you on that. It's original, you know, like with say Jupiter Ascending, which didn't perform at the box office or Cloud Atlas uh, didn't perform, yeah. but they're really ambitious films that are fun to watch. Uh, Simon and I saw both of them at the cinema together and we had such a good time watching yes. them I, I think they're really effective and and it's it's i'm kind of glad that they're able to come back to cinema because they've been in exile uh, for a while they were on on netflix with a show called sensate which was ultimately cancelled because they always go too big 
to a niche <laughs> audience and like they can't justify the budgets but um i guess they're back on uh, they know it's a good uh, a good uh, sort of thing with the matrix movies uh, and reboots are so popular right now it sort of makes sense also as an aside i would say that i'm just holding out hope and crossing all fingers that they keep the title the matrix for Imagine how funny that will the look Fortress. on a shelf. The Matrix, <laughs> the Matrix Reloaded, the Matrix Revolutions, the Matrix Four. Like it couldn't be any dumber. So perfect. I'm sort of I'm, hoping like the to... title is The Matrix Two. To be honest, <laughs> and like, guess what? <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd just like to add a, a tweet at this point from uh, Daniel Benworth Gray, uh, who tweeted the, this this list of film titles, which was uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music 2020, The Matrix 4 2021, Bram Stoker's Dracula vs. Cats 2022, My Own Even More Private Idaho 2023, and <laughs> Spathreed 2024. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. I mean, it is. We 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 are in the age of uh, well, we are in the age of Keanu and in the age of renewed Keanu appreciation. And I, I think at this point, I wouldn't be surprised to see any previous Keanu Ooh, film. Grand grandparenthood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'm here for it. Um, he uh, has the privilege of being a Paul Rudd type who just gets more attractive as he gets older. So um, no wonder we're in the Keanu Renaissance. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> and he sort of delivers though like he's on the third john wick film at the moment and it was really good uh you know obviously not all down to true. him but he he's in the best shape he's ever been in you know he can do he can do kung fu now which is great uh for this <laughs> franchise and uh I'm, I'm excited to see you know what what they bring from the the john wick sort of side of his physicality into the matrix world and then maybe a Lake House sequel. Finally, a sequel. Well, I'm really gunning for a to. Something's Got to Give sequel where oh, Keanu yes. plays a sexy doctor. Um, <laughs> if we could just reunite Jack Nicholson, Diane Keaton, Amanda Peet, Keanu Reeves, uh, et al. for that, I would be uh, first in line. <laughs> we'll call it Something Gave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I, I just feel, I really do feel for the Wachowskis in just in how they've they've not, had as big a success as The Matrix and it's a real shame when films like Cloud Atlas and, and Jupiter Ascending get written off and their Netflix show, which was pretty good, gets cancelled. So yeah. really pleased that somebody is giving them some money to do something because it's kind of a waste when they're not making things. 100%. Okay, so well, we're just going to talk, touch briefly on some TV related news. Um, admittedly, I think this is an area where the four of us on this podcast probably don't have a huge amount of interest, but it's but it's worth covering. I think on future episodes and with some some people we've got lined up, I think we'll be able to talk about TV a bit more. But um, I just wanted to to remark briefly on the on the surprise news that um, Sci-Fi's Krypton had had a second season and, and they were planning a Lobo spin-off. Uh, but now I, I discovered this because of the news that Krypton has been cancelled and the Lobo spin-off has also been cancelled. Um, so we won't get to see any more of the hilarious looking interpretation <laughs> of Lobo um, that Krypton put in their second season. Uh, it's so hard to hear the word cancelled without thinking of the new iteration of the word cancelled. Like, you know, if Lobo got cancelled, <laughs> yeah. like, what's Lobo, Lobo done? Cancelled. Oh, God, what's Lobo I mean, said what, what hasn't Lobo done? Yeah, if anyone honest. was going to get cancelled, it would be Lobo. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so so even d- despite not being a streaming service, Krypton has has hit the, the, the two seasons and dead mark. 
Um, I, I, I have never watched a second of it. Um, I, I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it just now. I'm just looking it up. It sounds great. <laughs> I genuinely, I, I never found out what I remember. We talked about a little while ago when it was when it was in the early stages. Uh, I remember Joe asking about Adam Strange because Adam Strange was going to be a key character in it. I have no idea how that ended up playing out. When I saw a synopsis um, that mentioned that there was some time travel involved in it, which ooh, who knows? Right. Who knows? But it's but, just yes, it's part of nobody cares. I mean, it's part of Warner's thing of of trying to do shows about their superhero properties that have as little to do with the actual superheroes as possible and are instead sort of prequels about less interesting people. Yes. It sounds um, Pen- Pennyworth is coming. Pennyworth is on the way, yes. Oh, uh, great. Despite something that's just happened in Batman comics today, uh, which could be deemed a spoiler, but it's going to be talked about loads. But uh, yes, uh, a major thing has happened uh, regarding that character in okay. today's mm. issue of Batman. McGregor syndrome. Which has been controversial. Oh, jeez. Uh, but uh, yes, I mean Pennyworth. Will that get two seasons? That that won't get two. How seasons, many of those? We've all seen the trailer. How many of those <laughs> Batman series have there been now? There's like Gotham, all the Gotham ones. But how, how many other spin-off Batman TV series have there been since Gotham? Or is this the first one? I think this I is think the this... first one since. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we've had a few seasons I mean, of Gotham, right? Oh yeah, there were like five seasons oh, of Christ. Gotham. I think. Okay, fine. Um, I am. I mean, obviously, with with, their, with with us getting Pennyworth, that means we are genuinely in line to get Batmobile and Utility Belt. Uh, <laughs> is Pennyworth? If Teen Titans Go has taught me anything. Is he young, sexy Alfred? Is that where? Yeah. They're going? Okay. Yeah. Great. You'd have it's, to. It's. You'd have to. Yeah. Yeah. He's. Um. Who is. Who is it that's playing him? It's. Uh. It's weird because he's a British actor, yeah. but he's doing a really bad Mockney accent. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> who's the actor? And it's got. Um. Uh, it's got Paloma Faith in it doing a really bad northern accent. Jesus Christ. Uh, playing the villain. Uh, the uh, Jack Bannon is the, the actor playing Alfred, a former British SAS soldier who works as a bouncer at an exclusive London club while starting up his own security company. Christ. <laughs> you know, the, the classic Alfred backstory. <laughs> the classic Alfred backstory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God. The only other thing I wanted to say regarding TV and regarding two seasons and cancelled um, is that I, I, I will talk about this a bit more, whether we'll talk about it on an episode or I think I'm going to write something on it for the site. Um, but eating my words slightly over the boys, um, I mean, you know, I had I was I was set against it just because of the fact that it that we reckon it was the reason why the tick got cancelled by Amazon uh, to make room for it. But uh, I don't know if anyone else here has watched it. I'm sure plenty of people listening have watched it. I haven't finished it yet, but it's really good. I've heard really uh, good stuff, and I've not given it a go it's yet. Really good. Um, the main reasons why it's really good are that it's 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 like Kickass in that it takes what the comic was doing well and and does that stuff well, and in some in in some cases I think better than the comic in terms of kind of having something to say about the state of the world and about celebrity and stuff, but using superheroes as a filter for it. But jettisons a lot of the stuff that that you don't like about the comic, which again the Kickass movie I think did well. The cast are excellent, and it doesn't look cheap. Like it really does look like it's had money thrown at it. Um, you know there are there are big scenes that come off really well because there's obviously money there. Um, I think it's re- I think it's one of the best superhero TV shows in a while from what I've seen of it so far, and I really didn't expect that to be the case. Ooh, I might add so. it to my list. Is it funny? Um, 
it's got black humour in it, but not a lot of it. I mean, it's again, it's not the tick, and it's not as good as the tick, but few things are as good as the tick. It's it, it's not funny, funny in that sense. Um, it's it's very grimly funny at times, if okay. you see what I mean. Sure, I, I mean um, I love Carl Urban, and I think he's a really talented guy, and I would love to see him just do more and more and more. So I'm very happy for this to exist. I'll give it a go. It's it's decent. I mean, the worst thing about it is Carl Urban's accent. Oh. Um, Carl. He's supposed to be playing a Cockney, and I spent the first episode oh, going, God. have they just made him be from New Zealand? But basically the dialect is Cockney, but he's kept his own accent. It's really bizarre. Oh, I don't geez. know why he's doing it, because he did a quite good Cockney accent in Thor Ragnarok. Right, yeah. But he's not doing that voice in The Boys. Oh, it's come really on, bizarre. Carl. He's good, aside from, you know, and yeah, I like him too. But yeah. <clears throat> um, that's that comes off weird, but um, no, it's it is it, it's well cast. Um, I forget the actor's name, but the guy playing the Homelander um, is really good, uh, and and puts a bit of a bit of Captain America into it as well as a bit of Superman, and and that kind of neuroses bubbling under the surface. Elizabeth Shue is excellent, actually. I love uh, Elizabeth Shue. Yeah, she's she's pivotal, and she's really good. God, um, I, I, I just Shoe. Yeah. I just rewatched Hollow Man the other night. Absolutely love her. <laughs> Absolutely love that woman. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, despite all my earlier sort of, mm, I'm not sure if it's going to be any good, um, it is. I was wrong. I, uh, knowing that I was going to come on the show, I looked at some comic book movie news, and I didn't find any, but I did find two pieces of game news related to comics, which I wanted <laughs> to bring it, up so. quickly. <laughs> so, good news, guys. The Joker is finally a playable character in Mortal Kombat 11. Oh, oh, finally. Phew. You can download him very soon. And the studio that made the PS4 Spider-Man game has now been bought by Sony, basically meaning they will only yes. make Spider-Man games for the foreseeable future. Great. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of fair because the Spider-Man PS4 game was great. It's amazing. And I was yeah. worried that we wouldn't maybe see another one or we'd have to wait for a really long time or whatever. But now the studio will only work on them. So <laughs> yeah, roll so on Spider-Man like 2. I remember in the nineties, um, there was a, there was a Liverpool-based development house called Signosis, um, who'd made some some pretty decent games, and then they made the early PlayStation F one games, and Sony bought them and turned them into Sony Computer Entertainment Europe, was was basically headquartered in Liverpool, like what was Signosis. <laughs> That's not very interesting. Going, oh, we like your game. We'll have the company. Uh, sure. In about ten years' time. There'll be four companies. One will be called Entertainment. One will be called <laughs> Health. One will be called Food. And uh, one will be called Spider-Man. That's how the one's going to look. I was expecting mattresses to be the last one. <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. It's Spider-Man. But thank you for playing. Okay. There are four kinds of business. Tourism, food service, railroads and sales, and hospitals slash manufacturing and air travel. <laughs> Okay, so after that, after that seamless bit of joke remembering that I definitely did on the first take, uh, let's move on to. You've all been looking forward to this. I've no idea how long this episode's going to run for. Our spoiler-filled discussion. Spoilers: He dies at the end, except he doesn't. Uh, of Christopher Nolan's 2012 movie, The Dark Knight Rises. But let's listen to uh, some Hans Zimmer noises and a trailer beforehand. 
It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. can you see by the dawn's You are as precious to me as you were to your own mother and father. I swore to them that I would protect you, and I haven't. The mayor's gonna dump him in the spring. Really? Mm-hmm. But he's a hero, a war hero. This is peacetime. You think this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Right, so that was the trailer for The Dark Knight Rises, the third film in Christopher Nolan's retrospectively named Dark Knight trilogy, after The Dark Knight Begins and The Dark Knight. Um, Before we get into talking about our reactions to the film, having just watched it again for the podcast, I would like to go back to 2012 and just discuss a little bit reactions in the immediate aftermath, because I think it's going to be interesting to see what, if anything, has changed since then. Um, and part of the reason that I want to do that is that I saw this film with, uh, certainly with you, Simon. Uh, were you at the same screening, Sam? I so th- I remember the, the, the when they screened this film, I didn't actually go to a press screening, but on the night of the premiere, they took over the whole of Leicester Square and they had that big flaming um, Batman logo that we see in the film. 
Uh, and instead of going to that, Warner Brothers sent me to their tiny screening room in their office <laughs> to watch the film at exactly the same time. <laughs> so... James, were you in the same room as Sam in that case? Because... I have no idea. I can't remember what I did seven minutes ago, let alone uh, okay. seven years ago. <laughs> well, okay, because the recollection that I have of this is that I was definitely at the same screening as Simon, yeah. and I think that was the multimedia Leicester Square one. Oh. Or maybe, well, well anyway, I... it was somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I remember coming out and having talked to you about enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, and then James texted and was like, fucking hell. And I was like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> fucking hell. I do remember that, actually, yeah. Like, <laughs> James was like, no, I, I don't mean in a good way. <laughs> and that's always stuck with me that you saw the film at the same time as me, but not in the same place. Unless I'm misremembering it, Simon, and you were actually in the same place as James, of course, which could be the case. But... Was <laughs> luck- I, would, I, I can't remember whether I went to the multimedia screening, but I was lucky enough to go to the European premiere, mm-hmm. uh, which was very exciting. I was, getting... I was just about to say, it's always interesting for our listeners to hear about how film critics see films, because it's a really important part of the process. <laughs> you've one-upped with a European premiere. Anyway. Well, I was very lucky. I was doing a job at Momentum Pictures at the time, and a guy that worked there... Uh, when he started out, he was starting out at Universal, and the King Kong film came out, and he loved King Kong the original more than any more than anything in the world. And when the 2005 came out, all he wanted to do was go to the premiere, and no cunt would give him a ticket. And then I was so excited about Dark Knight Rises that he was like, "No one gave me a King Kong ticket, but I'm giving you my Dark Knight Rises <laughs> ticket." He paid it forward, and it was very much appreciated. I've never been so excited in my life. <laughs> So and that excitement translated through for you for to enjoying the film? Yes, it did. Um it very much did. I saw I think I saw this film at least four and certainly maybe five times on its theatrical release. And then actually I hadn't watched it for seven years until a couple of days ago for this podcast. Wow. I just didn't touch it. Um I, I like it for a lot of different reasons. I actually think I like it more now than I did seven okay. years ago. Um, but we'll get into that. Um, I definitely don't like it more now than I did seven years ago. <laughs> but I think I feel like... We'll, we'll talk about it a bit later on. But I feel like I understand now why I came out of the film feeling the way I did. Because of specific things that happen at specific times. Sure. And I could, but but watching it now, I did. I, it felt like a slog in a lot of ways. But again, we'll we'll come to that. Yeah. Sam, what 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 were your kind of thoughts back then and in, and indeed now? I was so hyped up to see this because in between uh, the Batman films, Christopher Nolan, director Christopher Nolan, had made uh, a, a bunch of really successful films: The Prestige, Interstellar. So the, the Nolan brand uh, was was pretty large at this point, uh, and it was a sequel to such a hotly uh you know it's it's just like the most popular thing at the time it's crazy to think in a world before the mcu took over Hmm. all comic book movies it was the dark knight the dark knight the dark knight and everybody just wanted a sequel so i was super hyped i thought the trailer was good i was intrigued by bane quite like tom hardy he was good in uh some of his early i mean he was in a previous christopher nolan film but bronson was an amazing film that he was in earlier in his career and I was mm. excited to see the guy from Bronson doing a huge uh, AAA Hollywood movie. Um, and I, I, I think I, I really liked the film, but it was not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I think like Simon, I saw it like four times. And so when you see something four times at the cinema in that main theatrical run in the space of 
I don't know, maybe six weeks, you sort of lose some of your critical facets and you just enjoy oh, like sure. the rhythm of the <laughs> film. Like it became like listening to one of my favorite songs. Like I just yeah. enjoyed everything about it. And so I, I, I sort of, I think I lost, as it, as it went along, I became more fond of it because of that. Exactly. We, we, we were obsessed with it. I mean, it's all we talked about for, for months. Um, and at, at that that's time. for good and bad reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Did you at that time like kind of hold it above the Dark Knight, or was no. it just that that was you know that was the one you just had, so that was the one that you were? No, it's it's, over? it's objectively not as good as the Dark Knight. Um, I think, but that's it's also clear different to, to it, and I think that's why it we is. liked it. And yeah, I agree. I think, and I th- I do think that. I mean, obviously, we'll we'll come to this, but I think that uh, that Hardy is the 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 most uh, significant change in between those two films. <laughs> Uh, so much so that I th- and he's certainly the thing that I enjoy about it the most because it almost feels like a performance that is so big that it might even just sabotage a Christopher Nolan film, like <laughs> a, f- a film and a filmmaker who wants nothing more than to be taken deeply seriously, <laughs> almost sabot- almost derailed by a pantomime dame of a performance. <laughs> from his key villain. Yeah, I mean, it's just on that so delicious. On that topic, I couldn't remember what I felt when I came like oh, clearly Seb remembers my reaction better than I do. <laughs> I remember I wasn't a big fan of it. I went and had a look at my own tweets to find out what I said about it. <laughs> I have written Dark Knight Rises is the funniest Batman film yet. Wait, what's that? Not a comedy. And then also, <laughs> uh my favorite character was the one with the ridiculous voice. Yeah. I mean, which fair I enough. think pretty much sums up how I feel about the film now. Yeah, I had a, I had a really good time rewatching it. Um, I was laughing a lot. Probably not where they intended me to. It's a hoot. It's an undeniable <laughs> hoot. It's a long old hoot, but it's a hoot. <laughs> I'd like to see Christopher Nolan make an actual comedy because if he can be this funny when he's not even trying, <laughs> just imagine. <laughs> no, but none of it's Nolan. That's the thing. Like, yeah, it's yeah. So. So painful in his uh, seriousness, and and also just the, um, I mean, I could talk forever about Nolan's crap dad jokes that are always oh, given God. to a supporting character who's sat in a car watching Batman do something. It's just unbearable. <laughs> Those are the only actual jokes that exist in these films, and they are all awful like absolutely terrible the dialogue in this film generally i found really like it was like it was a first draft i just felt like you know someone could have punched this up so it didn't sound awful like if you're that that committed a filmmaker that you you know put this much thought into into your plots and your characters like why don't you make them talk like actual humans as well they just absolutely don't it's a thing with nolan sorry he uh he doesn't he's not interested in people <laughs> like mm. that's just not what he loves uh, the, the, <laughs> like the vibrancy of the film he loves the set of the film the set pieces the action and like yeah. the film as a whole but the people are just such a tiny cog in the whole thing I mean, that... he's not interested in them <laughs> yeah that would be why the the final act of this film takes place in a city with no people in it <laughs> like i was watching all, all the, the stuff with them just go all the stuff with them flying around the streets and going through the streets and chasing down the bomb and all of that stuff and i was like so so the the plot here 
is that they're worried that this nuclear bomb is going to destroy this city, but it'll only kill about 20 people if it does. So, <laughs> I so suppose worry. there's no people in Gotham. I suppose what they very haphazardly do is with the Matthew Modine character, they try and show us that people have become shut in since it's going to be the end of the world in two <laughs> days anyway, which yeah. doesn't work. But James, back to your point about the dialogue, I think uh, I think you're bang on. I, I, I think that this is the film in which Nolan's characters are at their most robotic. Um, <laughs> but do you remember the, um, the conversation that uh, Bruce and Alfred have, uh, the sad on the stairs goodbye conversation there's an exchange of lines in that scene that is just unbelievable i wrote it down because i hated it so much (laughs) alfred says i am using the truth master wayne maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day and then bruce says you're sorry you expect me to destroy my world and then think we're going to shake hands like jesus christ (laughs) that's like one of those i showed a bot a thousand hours of christopher nolan films and then asked it to write one it's just like imagine reading that stuff imagine getting those sides and thinking like christ how am i gonna make this sound like i'm not wading through treacle as i stop trying to outsmart the truth if someone said that to you in a pub like like like, christ no christopher absolutely not (sighs) okay well so simon we've established that you Love this film and still love this film, or at yeah, least I, still enjoy I mean, this film. Love is a very strong word, Seb. <laughs> okay. I think it's a lot of fun and it's yeah. deeply flawed, but I think there's some undeniably excellent things about it also. Well, this is the thing because I think because well, what what I wanted to ask really kind of up top is, you know, is is it you know even if you you like and admire so much about a film, can you truly love it when it's as politically? appalling oh, yeah. this film is yeah <laughs> talk to me about the politics of this film i don't i don't know how this film almost gets a, a free pass on its disgusting politics i think i genuinely think it's the most conservative film ever made i really do <laughs> and christopher nolan is a very conservative filmmaker i was about to say it is vying with the dark knight and its message sure. of like it's completely okay to surveil everyone as long as the right people are doing it yeah um I agree, although I think that uh, Christopher Nolan sitting down on a Sunday morning and opening his broadsheet newspaper and reading about Occupy Wall Street and then getting up on his high horse and thinking, the proletariat don't know what they're talking about. I'll take a, I'll take a book that they haven't read, A Tale of Two Cities, and adapt it for them because they're idiots. And then I'll feed them their own shit back and they won't understand it anyway because they don't understand what I'm doing. A, a meta god. Uh, and, uh, and, then, and then for that, that central conceit to be thoroughly undermined by the performance of the villain is, is such a delicious irony to me. So, which sort of makes it come across like I sort of really hate this film and think it's funny that things don't work, which I do. But also I think that on a technical level, there's loads of stuff that is just as astounding as it is in any other Nolan film. But in terms of the politics, yeah, it's absolutely repulsive. Bane is the uh, the ultimate hero. I mean, if you go to like demonstrations, uh, you're guaranteed to see uh, some hard left guys who have like Bane's face on placards and stuff. Um, it, it happens. 
He's a he's a proper socialist. Yes, he murders people. <laughs> come on, who doesn't? Right? Come on. There are murder. There's murdering on both sides. For sure, everyone's going to get shot in the head in a Christopher Nolan film. Um, it just so happens that Bane shot first. No, that's unfair. Uh, he does. He does murder a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think its politics are uh, are insufferable, horrific. I just, I really do think it's remarkable that someone could take a film about the character of of Batman, who is so defined by being in opposition to the concept of the police. Yes, I mean, unless you're watching the '66 TV series or or, or Batman and Robin, yeah. uh, where you know where he's properly buddied up with them, and and actually that's one of the fun things about Batman is those times when he's essentially deputized by the police. And anyway, but the thing is, you know, obviously that part of the point of Batman is Batman operates in Gotham because Gotham's police force are corrupt. Yeah, and in Batman Begins, Gotham's police force are corrupt, and Jim Gordon is the only decent cop. Yeah. And that's why he and Batman ultimately work together. And then you reach a point where we're like, you know, within a time frame of what must be less than a decade, really, because I don't think there's that much time between Begins and and uh, The Dark Knight, is there? So you've then got that eight-year jump. But in that period, all of a sudden, Gotham's police force is incorruptible and just this, you know, wonderful army of brave soldiers, essentially. And the film ends with Batman being replaced by a cop. The new Batman, or rather, the Robin, and we'll come to that because I quite like it, but I don't know, most people don't. But, you know, the new Batman is literally a policeman. I uh, And it's just, wow. I spent uh, quite a lot... This is the first time I've watched this film uh, not in a public setting, and I, uh, I was at home watching it on, on my telly, and my girlfriend was in the next room, and... Uh, I kept sh- I kept chanting a cab to myself, um, <laughs> and she ke- she kept coming in saying what did you- what are you why are you talking to yourself and I was I just couldn't help but sh- like that moment where all the cops are, uh, are running towards all of all of yeah. the all of the beautiful Bane boys I was just going a cab a cab a cab just watching all the all the pigs get gunned down um, it's it's a confusing film it's a very confusing film. <laughs> So the politics are awful. <laughs> can I can I tell Agreed. you? Uh, can I tell you a, a note that I wrote down? Uh, I was I was <laughs> I was thinking to myself about performances uh, and who's good in the film and who's less good in the film. And I've just written I've just written the sentence: Michael Caine, a Tory like Batman, does good work. <laughs> I mean, I I I do think almost everyone does good work um i think there is one massive glaring exception which which we can come to um but yeah i mean i i'm very much on your side when it comes to tom hardy in this um i think i don't know if christopher nolan is but i think tom hardy is very aware of exactly what he is doing in this film and i think it's brilliant yeah it's, it's the best thing about the well, film. Well, Tom Hardy was so game to be in this in like a production level. He was in Inception, uh, the Chris Nolan's previous film, and he didn't read a script to be in this film. He just wanted to work with Nolan again. <laughs> and his only 
uh, all he knew at the time was he'd be a villain wearing a mask. And all he said back he wanted was all of the martial arts training he desired, gets to fire a gun, <laughs> and gets to fight Batman. <laughs> That's all Tom needs. He's such a game uh, performer. Hilarious. Christ. And I think you know. I, I think I think you know the film. What the film does really well is to create a very iconic and memorable villain. It's like you know everyone knows who Bane is off the back of this film, even though Bane in this film bears so little resemblance to Bane from the comics. Sure. Yeah, I find that really um, interesting. How how much they changed him, like. Only on the most superficial level do they retain anything that makes Bane recognisably Bane. I mean, and even superficially, it's even down to the fact that, you know, Bane in the comics, I mean, he wears a luchador mask just Mm. because that's the kind of guy he is. Um, You know, he has tubes in the back of his head to feed in a drug that gives him super strength. Mm. That's missing from here. Instead, you've got the the mask over his mouth, which is, you know, nothing like what it is in the comics. Doesn't serve the purpose of the comics. His goals and his motives couldn't be further from the version in the comics. You know, the only real thing in his background is raised in a prison you know basically a big hulking guy who was raised in a prison and breaks batman's back are pretty much the only things that make it over from the comics and bane is a really interesting character in the comics because and actually interestingly sort of in relation to something we were talking about in the film bane was co-created by one of the most openly conservative writers in comics who's (laughs) chuck dixon um but actually that doesn't really feed into um his background because actually chuck dixon is one of those kind of there were a few conservative comic book writers in in comics who very deliberately, like like their writing is very apolitical. I think um, because they like to well whether it's like they like to kind of just keep it out of comics or kind of keep hidden what their actual politics are. But you know I, I've never got the sense of Bane in the comics is written as a commentary on what socialist revolutionaries are like by a, a guy who's an, who's an American conservative. Instead, what Bane is is, as I say, you know, he's this guy who was raised in a prison uh, in a in a on a South American island um, who has dreams of a bat um, and kind of learns about the existence of Batman in Gotham City and basically right. is someone who's trained himself up to be like the kind of the peak of humanity to be a sort of a match for Batman. He's kind of visually and in some of his character there's kind of elements of Doc Savage in there like part of his character design and, and like his hair and his mask and stuff are designed to be a little bit like Doc Savage in terms of being that, that peak of humanity. Uh, and then he essentially he comes to Gotham and and defeats Batman by cheating because what he does is he breaks everybody out of Arkham Asylum and waits for Batman to fight every single escaped Arkham Asylum villain waits until he's completely knackered and then breaks into Wayne Manor and breaks his back. Okay. Um, but ever since then, Bane has become a more and more interesting character because he sort of he re- he reaches this thing of I want to take over Gotham and be the king of Gotham, gets it is a bit unsatisfied, gets defeated by Jean-Paul Valley, who is the replacement Batman in, in Nightfall. Um, and then after that, he's generally been made... Um, they've sort of tried to give him kind of redemptive arcs. He's been in things like Suicide Squad and Secret Six, where he's been, you know, a bit more of an anti-hero and a bit more kind of complexity and that kind of thing. At the moment, in current Batman comics, he's the main villain of Tom King's Batman run, has gone more out and out villainy manipulating things from behind the scenes but he's he's actually from someone who was essentially created to be the big strong guy who breaks batman's back because they were doing what they'd done with death of superman um 
he's gone on to be a really interesting character. And it should be kind of annoying that the films haven't touched that really interesting character because we've had the Batman and Robin version that was just a big wrestler mm. who didn't say anything. And then we've had this version that, that owes nothing to him. But I don't mind because this version is is really interesting himself as well. This, and there's so much to enjoy about the look and the performance and everything. This version And of, to agree with him. <laughs> this version of Bane reminds me of the Civil War version of Baron Zemo, who bears no resemblance to the comics mm. version, but is excellent in his own right. Yeah. And 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 is also correct to an extent. Yes, yeah. In much the same way as Bane. <laughs> I just can't get over that, you know, a scene was shot in which the villain goes into Wall Street and, and shoots a load of bankers and, and you're supposed to disagree with them. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's amazing. I mean that's Chris Nolan for you. I mean I, I really <laughs> read love the room, the guy, man. Read the room. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think he does. I think he lives in a different world. But I suppose on the Bane stuff, what they do is that sort of slightly cheap trick of shrouding him in mystery so you know all of the characters uh you know batman and alfred they're all asking questions about him the whole time they just keep saying he's a mercenary and so the whole you know you make him interesting by dint of not giving that much away and then i suppose well yes he's a big man and he has a mask um the mask is never really explained until batman cops a bit off it and you get a sort of a um noise and you're like okay well it's a breathing thing uh, fine. Ah, he's gone in a minute anyway. Like it, 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 they just don't do anything with the character, and maybe hardly seen that on the page and be like, "I just do what I want them." Fine. <laughs> I think he it, just had a blank, uh, not a blank check, but he had just like blank canvas where Nolan was keen to work with Hardy, and Hardy would do anything uh, to work with him. And I think he had such freedom he could have fun with the character, which I think he's doing on screen. Oh my god! And then some. I, yeah, I also sort of love the idea of every day uh, Nolan sitting in a screening room with the execs uh, and him like sitting there, shrouding his head in his hands, sweating profusely, <laughs> thinking like, "Oh God, what's Tom doing? Oh God, what's he doing?" Are they While they're fire like, me? "Are they going to find me?" I mean, sorry, no, what's what's the guy saying? Like, why has he got Marvin the Martian's voice? i'd love to know what voice he did on set because the voice is mm. it's sometimes the sound mix is so jarring yeah added in in post like what what was the on set bane like well there was there was that scene the the opening scene got put out i don't know did it actually get released in cinemas as a preview in in imax cinemas yeah it was attached to mission impossible i think yeah and and that was the original sound mix and nobody could make out what he was saying it was very difficult you can watch it on youtube yeah Um, so they redubbed it and but i don't know if that was how he always sounded when they were actually shooting or not Mm. um but that's kind of i mean it's weird because that reshot scene I mean that it's it's really glaring in that scene more so than anywhere else in the film. It sounds so ADR'd. Yeah, and maybe it's because you know that it has been, but it really does have that feeling. I mean, of, I, I does didn't not sound like it's in the room. I didn't know that it had been ADR'd, and I still was sitting there going, "Like this has definitely been dubbed over." So yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, it's like, fascinating because uh, I also think just the sound mix of the whole film is terrible, like really, really terrible. Sam and I were talking the other day after we both finished watching it. And uh, like that mix is a nightmare. So much so that both Sam and I, in our separate homes, had our thumbs on the volume control for the whole film. Mm. You know, you're just either chucking. <laughs> I it find up or generally I'm having again. to do that 
a lot with films these days. And I actually, I wonder if you can actually trace it back to Nolan's success. <laughs> yeah, it was ahead of the curve in that. <laughs> it's so <clears throat> annoying because Nolan is kind of like a perfectionist in terms of mm. filmmaking. On a technical mm. level, he shoots on IMAX film, which he views as like the best quality film you can shoot on. It's got the highest definition and etc. But then it's a bit of a trait with him in terms of the sound mixes, both for this and Interstellar. Um, they're they're really bad. And they're, yeah. they're bad to hear the dialogue. And it just reminds me that Nolan doesn't care about the characters. He doesn't care about the dialogue. He doesn't care he what they're to show saying. you a really big thing on a really big screen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are, there, it's true that there are plenty of sequences in this film where I'm actually happy not to be hearing the dialogue and just to be hearing Hans Zimmer's score instead. Sure, and the, and the um, spectacle, yeah. It's a it's a huge part of it. I also think uh, that now we have such clarity in this current mix where it is, we have such clarity in Bane's voice and the rest of the film is filled with men who just fucking mumble the whole time. Like people who... Like ben, ben Gorman and Ben Mendelsohn do not move their mouths, either of them. <laughs> so when you've, got a, when you've got a scene, especially when it's like the three of them in one scene together, I'm just like chucking the volume up and down every, like every 10 seconds, just desperately trying to hear anything that anyone is saying. Like a real, a real nightmare, I think, sound-wise. But what can you do? That's that's another bit. Just very quickly, since you mentioned Burn Gorman, I, I do like Burn Gorman, but the uh, it's another moment where like the film shows you something that the villains are doing that's supposed to be bad, and it's like they're doing this kangaroo court with with Killian Murphy's Scarecrow, where they basically condemn Burn Gorman's character to death by making him walk out on the ice. And I think you're supposed to view this as like incredibly cruel and unusual. And I was just sat there going, "Yeah, right, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, go on." <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> yeah. Um, with all the talk about Bane, um, I think it is, it, it's fairly easy when, when you're not watching the film to forget that it does the classic sequelitis problem of let's get two famous villains or, you know, villain slash anti-hero characters from the comics to be the antagonist because obviously we have got a Catwoman in this film. Um, Again, I don't know what you guys thought, but I actually, watching it back this time, um, I kind of found that any time that Selena Kyle wasn't in it was when the film was weaker. And I actually wanted far more of the film to be about her, certainly than about Miranda Tate, but also than about most of the other things, because I actually think she was the better vehicle for a lot of the political argument that maybe Christopher Nolan doesn't agree with, but that characters in the film were making. <laughs> um, and I also think she draws much better stuff out of Christian Bale in terms of chemistry and, and stuff with Bruce's character than any of Katie Holmes or Maggie Gyllenhaal or um, uh, Marion Cotillard managed across the three films. Um, here's what I have to say about that. Uh, Christopher Nolan isn't interested in women. And uh, <laughs> I genuinely believe that's why there's not as much Selena Kyle as there should be. Um, I think the character really works in the film. I think it's a good performance. And she's there purely to be a foil for Batman. She's, I mean, she's there for plot work. She's there so that Batman has a woman to walk off into the sunset with at the end. Like, uh, it's uh, it's not good enough. It's, and it, mm. and it's a shame because because uh, there's such good tools there 
yeah like, it's, I, I it's think a there's a better film somewhere yeah, definitely. that makes more of her there's a better film waiting to come out that that makes a lot more of her and, and yeah. it's a shame i mean yeah. i think anne hathaway's performance is driving a lot of that because every time i've seen her in anything she's always great oh, like, sure. she, i think she's so underrated and so underused as an actress yeah no she's wonderful um and it does explore interesting fun ideas with her i think the clean slate things are uh kind of use of the character um yeah for the for the most part it works there's just nowhere near enough of it and i wish that um i wish they'd done some more work there but he's too he's too busy interested playing with other big massive (laughs) macho toys um as is his want we've got we've got a whole room on an elevator here that we're going to use Mm. <laughs> yeah. a big subway with a machine in it <laughs> the um Anne Hathaway's character's introduction I thought was really good at the uh the the party at Wayne Manor and mm. she's got the best costume change ever like it's this film is full oh, of spectacular yeah. things like the giant sets and that amazing room elevator you mentioned James but <laughs> Anne Hathaway back flipping out of a window dressed as a maid and then taking off the cuffs and the collar and then becoming a society woman leaving apart that was like genius <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that sequence is like the best catwoman movie we have never been allowed to see yeah like i would definitely I th- I think, watch that film i think it shows us that if you take it in conjunction with batman returns um batman films need more in the way of scenes where bruce wayne and selena kyle are at a party verbally sparring while dancing with each other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this one's quite as good because I don't think they've got as much chemistry as the insane amount of chemistry that Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer have For got sure. in, in Batman Returns. But Although I would it's say, still pretty good. I would say that that chemistry is largely down to Michelle Pfeiffer and not down to Keaton, who I like, but is <laughs> not exactly dripping off the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a shame. I think oh, the let's... film doesn't really know what to do with her towards the end. Like she's much more interesting in the first half before uh, Batman goes to the the prison uh, and is away from Gotham for such a long time. Uh, I, I like that. Like she's better in a functioning Gotham, mm. um, mm-hmm. and towards the end, she just has to become Batman too and yeah, do some stuff and... that he can't do because he's doing something else. Mm. And they play that thing of oh, I'm just going to go off and leave, and I'm not actually bothered, and it's so. Like, does it convince anybody? It's like mm. you know she's going to come back. Uh, so it's I, you. You don't buy that there's actually any moral quandary there, really, because you've you've already seen enough of a sense of her as actually being a good person and and not just out for herself. So. Yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering she does get to dispatch Bane at the end. Oh, don't. <laughs> that's um, such an odd sequence where like she she turns up on the motorcycle and like shoots Bane and he flies off screen and then he's gone and that's it. I really yeah. think it's the it's the the low point of the whole film. Mm-hmm. Um, despite its abysmal politics, I think I think that scene is an absolute nightmare. I think it's uh, it's irresponsible as a storyteller to spend nigh on two and a half hours creating and building and molding this uh, key unshakable antagonist and then <laughs> ruining him in. Uh, gunshot and a crap joke it's it's insulting (laughs) going well i guess we're done with that guy now (laughs) yeah i mean it's unbelievable you can't dispatch your villain like that and that's not breaking the rules of fiction in a fun way it's breaking the rules of fiction in in an irresponsible and more importantly dissatisfying way yeah it's not even as if like 
you know, she shoots him and you get the kind of villain speech where he, you know, finally expires, like cursing Batman's name. He's mm. literally blown off screen and you never see him again. Well, it's basically the the film has decided at that. Well, because the film has revealed at that point that he's just a henchman. You know, he's not the the big mastermind behind it all that we thought he was. Mm-hmm. But we just don't care. We just don't yeah, care. Yeah, because we, we still love minutes. him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We spent two and a half but, hours But the film... Guy is essentially going, right, well, his work here is done now. We don't need him anymore. And yeah, it's like, you know, all of that stuff at the end would just, it would be far better if it was, I mean, Tom Hardy might have better acted the death sequence, which is obviously infamous um, for for that little bit of performance when she dies. But just generally, I mean, I I really do think that that character, not just when she's revealed as Talia, but actually earlier in the film, um, and it's nothing specifically against Marion Cotillard, who I who I generally like, but I think here um, is is poor the and is the weak link in the film. It's but yeah, the, the character just sucks the life out of the yeah, film. For sure. Um, and you know, the, you you get a scene uh, where her and Bruce kind of meet for the first time in the film, and it's supposed to be this kind of dripping with tension scene, and it comes just after you've had the scene with him meeting Selena. And the contrast couldn't be more stark in terms of, well, <laughs> I saw one interesting and sparky potential relationship there that I want to see more of. And then I've just seen this conversation between two people about running a company. Business. It gives a shit. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> Christopher Nolan, Nolan, yeah. It's Nolan and women all over again. She's there as a dramatic foil. She's there to turn up and do the business. And then, I, I mean, they have... They have sex, fine. Like, what? It, this is not his wheelhouse. He shouldn't be allowed to do those things. <laughs> like, she's just there to turn up and then be business and then have sex with the hero and then be the villain and then die like fucking hell. What a nightmare. It's not acceptable. Um, it's really bad writing and uh, he should be hauled over the coals for it a lot more than he already is. Absolutely. Agreed. It's a shame. Uh, but hey, that Bane voice, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, he gives you so much joy with everything else. Like, and we all agree the writing is crap, but it sort of <laughs> it, 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 there's so much to look at. It's such a fun experience oh. to watch it. Like, it doesn't matter. You could probably what if you could just mute the dialogue and keep the Hans Zimmer score, which is pulsating mm. throughout the whole film anyway. Yeah. Uh, it would be the same film. Well, I think it's specifically it's it's not just mute the dialogue; it's cut all the scenes that don't have any action in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> cut uh-huh. all of the talking scenes uh-huh. and just have the big set pieces. I think that's unfair. The spectacle <laughs> is unbelievable, and the cinematography is stunning, and the score is I mean, so that... good, and the sequences are put together so well, and it's really well directed. Um, but yeah, there's 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 big old problems. But as a it's not a writer, I mean, not a writer. Yeah. Yeah, bring back David I, I, S. Goya, right? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so he left this, didn't he, yeah. to make Man of Steel? That was his, or to write yeah, Man exactly. of Steel. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I just because we got to that point with the, I, I, as I said, I had kind of reached a point rewatching this where there, there was stuff I liked and there was stuff I liked at the start, but um, I was feeling like chunks of it were a drag. Um, and then it got to the football stadium scene. And that started, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you just had this glorious stretch of the film where it's it's absolutely doing what he does best and, and delivering the big kind of spectacle and the big high-stakes stuff that you want from this big climactic Batman story. Um, 
I just, yeah, I don't <laughs> think there's enough of it in the film. And I do think that the final set piece, which essentially boils down to it's a big kind of chasing your own tail around empty streets of a city. You know, I know, I know obviously in Dark Knight, there is that amazing car chase sequence. And then in this film, there's a, a decent car chase sequence that's that's not as good as the one in Dark Knight and feels a bit like a retread of it, but is but is good and, and works. But then to rely on that for the big ending set piece of of chasing the bomb around is just yeah, it's it's a shame because we've had such amazing spectacle earlier in the film. I think um... the car chase. So the first one um that you mentioned, uh Seb is so Bane leaves the bank the the stock exchange during the daytime and it's night it's full nighttime it's suddenly by the end of that chase how long does does that chase take yeah it it certainly is the end of the working day at the stock exchange (laughs) very very they're all been working late Um, (laughs) if only i'd gone home at five o'clock i wouldn't have got shot (laughs) um i just wanted to say just rewinding ever so quickly to um the stadium sequence i think one of nolan's key strengths i mean that 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 sequence is not an action sequence it's a stake setting sequence and i think it's absolutely one of his best strengths as a filmmaker um which is you know it's it's basically um the same job that the um the two boats sequence in the dark knight does <laughs> right so um here's a big moral quandary I'm the antagonist. I'm telling you that in this set of circumstances, someone in this city holds uh, the trigger to a nuclear bomb and uh, there we go, the stakes are set. That's what you've got to do with it after you know a big explosion, which is exciting. Um, he's so good at finding a moral quandary to explore and exploiting that in a very exciting way. And yeah... Uh, when, when it comes down to it, you know, the bomb and the helicopter and all of that nonsense, th- that action sequence is, it's fine. You know, it ticks along, it does its job. I don't really like the use of the bomb anyway. I don't think, uh, I don't think that's quite a fitting thing to end this trilogy on. I don't really know what you'd do otherwise, but that's the job of a writer and I'm not a writer. So, but I think, um, yeah, I think he's, he's so smart at those, um, at those moral mazes um and i think it's one of the best things about the film and certainly my favorite thing in the dark knight absolutely the two boat sequence is just uh, <laughs> so smart so the thing i would counter with here is that he's really really good at setting them up he's not good at then resolving them sure because the idea that like oh there's one person in here who can blow up gotham and we're not gonna let you find out like that's really intriguing the way he solves it is to get bane and punch him repeatedly in the face shouting <laughs> where's the bomb yeah like it's yeah, not it's dramatically done. satisfying, but the film, no. especially for a character who plot at all, because it they never talk about it other than they just sort of casually mention it. But it's it's uh, people running around after the trucks, like the, the yeah, resistance. They're going after force. the bomb, not after the the trigger. And then, like Batman is supposed to be the world's greatest detective. Like it would have been nice to come up with a smart way of doing that instead of like this sort of. 24 style conservative like uh, if we just torture the guy enough eventually he'll crack Mm. yes and also what's even more frustrating about the excellent setup of the trigger man is that when it comes to the end of the third act it's essentially pointless because the bomb's on a timer anyway so you know 
she's about to set it off with 11 minutes to go. Doesn't matter. It's going to go off in 11 minutes anyway. So like, mm-hmm. right. So the trigger man thing is, it sounds very exciting when you, when you say it in a big stadium after some big music <laughs> and a big explosion, but actually it's completely redundant. Okay. Like, so it's a weird <laughs> choice. Yeah. I do, I mean, for all of the problems with the bomb, you just mentioned about like not liking having the bomb thing at the end. I do really like that the film has Batman carrying a spherical bomb out <laughs> over the sea. It's so stupid. Uh, I mean, if you, if you, I think you have to be slightly charitable to read it as a deliberate reference to Batman right. 66. Yeah. And if it's not a deliberate reference to the some days you can't get rid of a bomb. That is like when, stupid. again, when I was looking through my tweets, I came out of the film and immediately tweeted some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> yeah. Like completely context free. So it wasn't a spoiler, but that is exactly the ending that I was thinking of. I think it's because the bomb is spherical that I choose to believe that it's a reference. And also because I genuinely think, and I remember writing an, an article about this at the time, I do think that this film is littered with like and and well i mean the, the the trilogy as a whole particularly this film i do think this film does pay homage to lots of different elements of batman and batman history um throughout it's things like you know that that sequence with bruce and selena at the party yeah. there's no way that's not deliberately making you think of batman returns mm-hmm. it can't just be coincidence mm-hmm. um i can't remember the rest of the article but i pulled out various other ones as the well. one so the um, one that you convinced me of like i i didn't really agree with this until i was complaining yesterday about the oh so that's what that feels like and then you showed me oh, yeah. it from the comics <laughs> and i was like oh, okay so it was deliberate yeah that's it yeah the, the the thing about someone disappearing and, and batman saying so that's what that oh, feels like yeah. that is a line of dialogue from the comic uh kingdom comes because superman does it to batman how interesting uh, and batman says that's what that feels it's, like yeah. that's very interesting because it feels like such a shit nolan joke like it couldn't feel <laughs> that's like what james said more it's nolan. interesting because it feels like nolan really isn't a fan of batman <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it shows that that's... he's maybe read a comic once. <laughs> that's, it's the only thing that gives you the impression that the film is actually interested in Batman. Well, the films are interested in Batman. And that was another point I was going to bring us on to, which is, you know, we, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Batman himself. And that's kind of par for the course for Batman movies, but especially for the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Um, I think in Begins, it's because you've got a film that is a, a really good film about this guy, Bruce Wayne, that isn't particularly interested in him ultimately becoming Batman. It's all about what he does before then. Um, oh. You've got The Dark Knight, in which The Dark Knight, to me, is a film that happens to Batman um, and is obviously very much about the Joker and Two-Face. Um, I mean, I think this film is quite dominated by Bane and by various other things that are going on, but I do think that more than the others, it's got a little more interest in Batman specifically, and particularly, I think, what it zeroes in on. These films have never been interested in showing us Batman going out and doing Batman-y things mm. and being Batman. You know, you can count on the fingers of one hand the the sequences you get that are just Batman actually going out and having a, a Batman-y fight kind of thing. Yeah. And, in, and in this film, they're, they're generally pretty bad. But what I think it does zero in on is this idea of Batman as an icon and as a symbol. And And I like where this film takes it at the very end in terms of Batman's ultimate role in all of this was to be the guy who's the icon and the symbol for other people to follow, the guy who gets a statue made of him and that kind of thing. I I, I think that stuff lands quite well. I agree. And I think, uh, I think 
a lot of that's I, I think a lot of the reason that that works is because of, of what Nolan's doing with the Tale of Two Cities touchstone in Rises. It's all inextricably there, like right there on the page and right there on the screen. Um, I think what's also interesting about Nolan's lack of interest in the character of Batman, I mean, it couldn't be more plainer. Two films in a trilogy of films are about a man becoming Batman. Like the first <laughs> hour of Begins and the first hour of Rises. Like that's two <laughs> halves of two films in your trilogy are about a man becoming Batman again. It takes so long to get him in the costume in this movie. Yeah, it was 45 minutes in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. just under an hour in the first one. <laughs> um, yeah, he just doesn't care. And I think that's sort of fair enough. I don't know how much more Batmaning I could cope with. I mean, there's already a fair, a, a, there's a lot in The Dark Knight, obviously. There has to be. Um, but yeah. It's kind of nice to leave you wanting more of that, I think. Like, we could just indulge and have loads of, like, the same punchy, punchy fight scenes, but. I sort of like how they they keep him because when he's Batman, something pretty cool happens. You know, he have a big fight, or he'll get on a, a an airplane or in a on a motorcycle and do something fun. So it's I sort of like how they try and steady, like, try and pace him out. I suppose he's also more interested in Batman as detective than he is as Batman as uh, you know as Punchy Man. Um, I'm not sure he is interested in him as a t- detective, to be honest. I mean, he goes on a computer once and reads the <laughs> there's internet. A, there's, a, there's a bit, I mean, not necessarily in this film, but there's the fun uh, bullet-shattering bit in the other film. That's very mm-hmm. detective-y. Um, mm. Struggling to think of anything else. But, <laughs> you know, there's well, that. As, so, as Bruce Wayne, he does a lot of investigating into things and, like, you know... Sure turning up at places to covertly scope them out so there is that aspect of the character yeah. breaking into the hospital room with uh, jim gordon was fun uh yeah. posing with his uh wanting to go what, what does he want to do like parachute surfing or something uh, skiing or something was it i don't know he wants he wants his knee fixed anyway oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. there's um it is kind of weird though that you've got a trilogy of Batman films in which most of Batman's career as Batman takes place off screen because like most of his time actually just being Batman day to day happens between Begins and The Dark Knight. Yeah. Because at the start of The Dark Knight, he must have been around and doing stuff long enough that he's inspired copycats and people know who he is and he's arresting the scarecrow again and stuff like that. <laughs> um you've then got all the stuff that happens in The Dark Knight which is, you know, I think takes place over a relatively short period of time. And then from the end of The Dark Knight to the beginning of The Dark Knight Rises, he's not Batman for eight years. Mm. He comes back for about a week and then he dies, in inverted commas. So he must have had a career as Batman in order to have that impact, but we don't really see it on screen. <laughs> yeah, And I guess, you know, it, maybe that's kind of partly a legacy of the fact that um, in order to do Batman, you kind of have to be doing Batman type stories in a serial format so it's you know the career of batman is something that's going to take place on a week by week case by case basis and that's not the structure that these films are set up for no i Um, mean it's that's telly right exactly that's an hbo series yeah Um, there's no um there's no like easter eggs to any rogues gallery he's fought in between the films is there either like nolan doesn't have any scope of the wider batman universe hmm I suppose. No, as I say, there's just the the only thing really, as I say, is that that sequence at the beginning of the Dark Knight, 
um, that, that firstly, as I say, you know, implies that he has been around and inspiring copycats. And secondly, the fact that arresting the scarecrow has become old hat for him kind of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, as I say, we, we do go directly from the Dark Knight into his retirement and his retirement lasts up until he comes back in this film. I just want to say it wasn't an old hat, it was an old mask. James. Uh, So one of the things I really love about this film is, as I mentioned before, Nolan's ambition and and his just epic scale. And I think this is the the film where we start to get Nolan as we have him today, like the big Nolan where nobody says no and he can do whatever he (laughs) likes. And I think we most see that in the prison uh, set towards the end of the film, which looks like something from like a grand silent picture from the 1920s, uh, which has just had... (laughs) Like everything Nolan possibly wants is in this set. There's a waterfall, there's thousands of people, there's all of those amazing uh, uh, stairways which form that pattern in the background. Uh, It's really, really impressive. Uh, The function of the prison in the film may be less so, but the actual set and just the (laughs) ambition of that that place is, is really wonderful. I think it's one of the best things about it and the design is fantastic. James and Seb, does that come from any sort of comic or is it just a pure brand new Nolan thing? Um... It's so strange. Is this the which is this the 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 circ, the circle the, pit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the circle pit prison. I was like, yeah, the, the Black Gate prison stuff. Um, it's so the uh, Bane comes from a prison uh, who I think either the prison was nicknamed the Pit or there was a specific cell called the Pit. Okay, but no, the design doesn't. The design is definitely Nolan's or you know Nolan's production designer or whoever. It's um, other other than the name and the concept of it being a prison that you're basically stuck in for life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that that's all kind of completely original to this. That's interesting. Um, I think I do think it's one of the the bigger successes in the film, but. It does also give us two of the mumbliest men, which is so... Like, what the fuck is Tom Conti saying at any given moment? No idea. Um, The other chap... I'm sure at one point he's probably saying, I could kill you with my thumb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On that reference, Jack. (laughs) There's a heck of a lot of mumbling, but it is really good. Hey, guys, do you want some great trivia? Really good trivia. Uh... I there is a chance that I'm in the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Can I tell you how? Please. Um so when they were in post production on the Dark Knight Rises, Zimmer put out a call. He flung up a bat signal for all the nerds <laughs> in the world because uh he knew that he wanted like a great big chanting cry of uh of of thousands of voices to be a big part of the score so uh he had a like a an early version of it which he'd done in a recording studio with 30 people and he invited people to record their own version of the chant the rise chant bashara bashara desi desi bashara bashara and uh, <laughs> send it in and if you send it in there's a chance that you'll be uh uh, you know, you'll be part of the sound mix and part of the film. And uh, me, a virgin, and my friend Mike, also a virgin, <laughs> sat in our sat in our uh, office in the house that we shared with Sam, uh, 
listening to this thing over and over again and then just shouting it into whatever piece of shit microphone we had at the time just over and over and over again like solid stone cold virgins and uh, <laughs> and that's uh, and that maybe made it into the film which I is thought exciting. I heard you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that, Sam. Uh, it's it's the it's the nerdiest thing I've ever done, and that's. I mean, this... that's the closest we come to having someone from an actual superhero movie on the podcast, so that's pretty good. Should we it's confirm true. Simon's in the film? Uh, it's impossible to confirm, unfortunately. Yeah, but also that makes it impossible to impossible deny. To, yeah, hey. exactly. Well, that's also true. He did say that but... he wanted hundreds of thousands of voices, but he probably used. A hundred voices, but fair <laughs> enough. Anyway, it was a lot of fun to do. And I love that motif in the film. I think it's a really smart idea. I'm now just, just to get my obligatory Red Dwarf reference onto an oh, episode. Here we go. <laughs> this is reminding me of how you can really obviously hear me cheering <laughs> in the last episode of Series 12 of Red Dwarf. Not quite, not quite the same. Particular set. <laughs> well, it's more obviously me, but it's also not quite as big a scale as this. So, so, well done, so. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think. Um, uh, I, th- I think the prison escape does feel like a very typically Nolan thing. I mean, obviously, we have to discuss the fact that we have no idea how uh, Batman gets back from the the wherever this far flung country is. <laughs> they do say far flung country, right? I think that's. That's the only yeah, reference yeah. to where it they might be. They never say where be. it is or how. Yeah, and, and definitely not how he gets back. And no. there is um, there is like this because the whole thing rests on the countdown for the bomb and on the news. So Bane's punishment of Bruce Wayne is he breaks his back and then makes him watch telly. But the only telly is <laughs> Gotham News, <laughs> where they're only covering the, the the Gotham siege. They're calling it on TV, yes. uh, and and it's like day eighty four, I think, when he leaves. And I'm not quite sure how... Is it three months they've got until the bomb goes uh, off? Like, So you could work out how long it takes for him to go back to Gotham if you've got more time. But like, it's it's just weird not explaining any of that stuff. I mean, the explanation is he's Batman. That's, sure. That's, that's but he's how poor he and he's got no cape. In. I was going to say, he's, he's Batman with no money or equipment. <laughs> but the thing about Batman is Batman thinks of everything. Bat- Batman <laughs> stashed a passport. Those, uh, gifts for people in Gotham as well. <laughs> <laughs> he's also stashed money in every country in the world because uh, he's uh, an embodiment of capitalism. Yeah. And uh, he loves money more than anyone so uh, he's fine he's absolutely fine he's laughing every time <laughs> the thing i uh sort of wish the prison had when bruce wayne is staying there um in the airbnb prison that he's in uh, is in the flashbacks everybody's wearing these like really cool uniforms uh and when bruce wayne shows up there that's all gone to shit and uh, uh people are I mean, just going with what they like oh, yeah <laughs> fashion right. trends change don't they in prison, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, in the in the inescapable prison. Wait, That's all they got is the clothes prison? they wear. When they say Bane owns this prison, like, what? Why does what? <laughs> What's that for? <laughs> who, are these people? who did he buy it off? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, is I guess the implication is that it's a sort of League of Shadows thing, right? Yeah, I suppose so. But who's regulating the inmates? It doesn't yeah. make sense. Who's who's putting them in there in the first place, and yeah. what for? <laughs> Why? Yeah. 
It's mad. I mean, it looks pretty. The thing is, it's not a prison, right? It's a metaphor. It's a big metaphor. It's a really massive metaphor hole. <laughs> also, why? Like, oh, yeah, why sometimes was... the, the pit spits something out or something arises. And you're like, ah, I like the name of the film. I get why, it. why did Ra's al Ghul want to raise his own child in a prison? He... Just a cool guy. Just an absolute edge. Why did Ra's al Ghul want to raise his own child? <laughs> Want to race his own child? Yeah, that that was the joke I was making, but just the other way around. <laughs> uh, no idea. Um, I couldn't hear anything. Maybe I'm going deaf. I couldn't hear anything Liam Neeson was saying in his flashy bit. What was he talking about? <laughs> uh, he was just the, uh, basically he was just gloating in Bruce's imagination. I think was the gist call, of that scene. Just calling him a dick. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. That, cool. The weird thing about that scene is that later on I was like. So was Liam Neeson like? Did he actually reveal anything, or did he just confuse everyone? I don't think he revealed a damn thing. Yeah, well, he wouldn't because he was a hallucination. Well, exactly, so, but is it like it's Batman's hallucination of a misunderstanding that he has about Bane, right? <laughs> is what yeah. that sequence? He's is. not learning. Bruce isn't learning anything at this point. Yeah, hmm. um, it's just confusing. Yeah, I don't really know why it's there. I mean, I suppose Nolan is just desperately trying to tie these films up and it does work and the tally stuff does that um so he's just trying to maybe add a bit more of a weighted legitimacy towards this being a, a complete trilogy maybe that's what it is yeah at the time yeah. did we think this was uh liam neeson's character actually coming back alive like a like a lazarus pit sort of nod or like was it reported that liam neeson was in this film or on set of this film at the time I can't remember if it was if it was known in advance. I think the thing is, yeah, when you're playing with this character, if he shows up having been thought to be dead, there is always going to be that thing in the back of your mind, even though these films have never established the Lazarus Pit or anything. There is always going to be that. At least I don't think they have, or have they? Uh, I can't no, no, and he does. No. He does say, um, doesn't he? Something like there are many forms of death, or some, some yeah. bollocks like that. I mean, yeah. I think it's clear by the time that scene's over that it is just a hallucination. But they yeah, actually I show him fading out, that which I think is of, important. Um, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> But I think I think when he first shows up, you're supposed to have that moment of, oh wow, he's back, and and he could be because he's Ra's al Ghul. Yeah. Um, but That's, there's definitely a choice, isn't there, that they've made in post where, like, there's no way <laughs> when they did a director's cut of that film that they had him like his body literally fading to dust as he leaves the scene. <laughs> like he just would have he just would have straight yeah. up left the scene and the execs yeah. are like, hang on a second, we don't know if he's yeah. alive. It's not clear if they're fading. Go on, lads. <laughs> fading Let's out just Neeson. Feed that. Uh, if we can if we can just have Bruce Wayne say a ghost when he turns up, that would help us. <laughs> or if or if when he arrives and leaves, Neeson just gets to do a bit of a ooh. <laughs> yeah. Have him weird. arrive in the scene wearing a sheet. <laughs> um friend of the podcast, Michael Leader, uh recently produced and <laughs> voiced a video. Um discussing the portrayal of Gotham City 
in the Batman films and talked about how across the Nolan films, and I think it's something that actually gets worse across the Nolan films, Gotham really struggles for an identity. Mm. And across the three films, there's a real, probably partly to do with how and, and where it was shot, but it really feels like there's a lack of consistency as to as to what Gotham itself feels like. And certainly me, for me as a, as a Batman fan, you know, it's it's a it's a hoary old cliche, but you know Gotham City is a character in in Batman and after you know looking at something like the the Burton films with the incredible Anton First designs and even the way uh, you know for all that there is to criticize about the Joel Schumacher films I think you can admire the production design being taken up uh, you know another level in terms of the Gotham in those films and I think I think particularly in Dark Knight I think probably partly because of those car chase scenes I think there is a certain amount of character to Gotham um, it really feels like it's lost here, and I don't get the impression that this is the same city that the other two films really took place in. Certainly, um, um, Batman Begins has a really clear identity for Gotham exactly. and a really yeah. strong idea about what it what it wants to say about the city. And then by this film, it's just like, uh, I guess it's not an island. Apparently, yeah. it, it, a lot of it feels too clean, and I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's a deliberate choice in terms of post Harvey Dent, the city's being cleaned up. But yeah, it, I think in Begins, it's got this nice griminess that we that we don't see again. And I say, I do think in Dark Knight, I think the imposing scale of it works quite well. But here, aside from the fact that it has a football team who I think are called the Gotham Knights, who play in yellow and black, have those really cool shirts. Mm. I don't get a sense of the identity of Gotham. Uh, or even anything to do with the you know the political setup of Gotham, or as I say, you know the the police have all become very kind of just generic and heroic. <laughs> the only thing we know about um, Gotham in this movie is that it has a lot of subway tunnels that are apparently well stocked with food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, do you and think... some like actual New York landmarks, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Street. Um, is is that? I mean, is it something that's you know, as I say, I I I, I like to see a good Gotham and I think it is interesting to draw a comparison to the other films does it impact this film negatively do you think that it's that Gotham's just not very interesting and and doesn't line up with the previous films I sort of don't mind because because it's a recognizably New York in this film you know for great chunks of it and to me Gotham is always like the the version of Gotham I like is like New York at night Gotham Manhattan at night so I'm sort of okay with it in that sense. I would say that it's a missing chair leg. Like it's like your <laughs> chair is still standing if it's got three legs, but also you sort of feel ever so slightly uneasy on it. I sort of think Gotham across the series is like Harry Potter syndrome, um, <laughs> but not quite as bad. Like every single Hogwarts feels completely different pretty much. Um, yeah, true. And, but then... In terms of the Harry Potter films, you can explain that away because they basically almost have <laughs> a different director every uh, every film or two, um, yeah. which is not the case here. And I think we do lose the sense of the city. And it's I think it feels so rich and developed in Begins. And uh, I like the direction that it goes in The Dark Knight. It feels very fitting with its subject matter and with its mysterious villain. Um mm. And then, yeah, it just doesn't really exist in in Rises. But I think that's okay. Again, I sort of think Nolan's bored of doing that. I think he's not interested in that anymore because he's done it twice already, or one and a half times. Um, and he wants to focus on the bigger picture. Um, and I suppose that's a bit of a shame. 
but he is going to do exactly what he wants because his films make billions of dollars. I think it's also what, reflecting what? the production. So like with Begins, I think they actually have model shots of Gotham and it's a bit more designed. Uh, obviously, they shoot some of it in real places where there's people, but for establishing shots. And and then in Dark Knight and in Dark Knight Rises, as, as the films get bigger and bigger and bigger and Nolan wants to showcase all of this reality, Nolan loves showing real things in the camera frame and that's why he uses mm. the largest film format the IMAX format uh, he wants to just shoot big cities so he does less model stuff he does a little bit in Dark Knight uh, with the, a big car chase but but not uh, not any sort of establishing stuff and then I don't think there's any of that in Dark Knight Rises because he just wants to do it all for real because yeah. like Nolan is becoming this brand who can do whatever he wants again I think that's the what the, that's what makes him such an exciting filmmaker, or at least one of the pillars that does anyway. Um, I rewatched Face Off a couple of weeks ago, and it was just so exciting to watch uh, a film in which uh, they put stuff in front of a camera and did stuff with it um, on such a massive scale, like you know, a big dumb action film. You can just blow stuff up, and it's so much more exciting. We've become so sanitized with. Um, with the texture of what modern action films look like. And it's nice to see someone doing something different. Um, it's really interesting that you make that point, actually, because I was discussing Mission Impossible Fallout with Lamara. Mm. And I was saying, I think the reason I don't rate that film as highly as most people is because I don't necessarily care whether the action is actually happening. Like, sure, you know, a helicopter crash to me it makes no difference whether they actually crash a helicopter or whether it's a CGI helicopter that no one goes, you know, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Cause I, it, it's the, the character stuff that, that draws me into those films. Sure. I, th- I think, um, I think there's something about the veracity of it that, that gives an impact that I find thrilling. It, and, but that being said, to confuse things, I don't really uh, much care for the Mission Impossible films. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But um, I just think uh, it's it's sort of like what we were saying about um, about the Wachowskis earlier on. Uh, I just love the ambition and scope. Uh, and obviously, you know, he's allowed to do that stuff because he's a massively successful and privileged filmmaker. Um, cool. um there's nothing uh there's nothing particularly thrilling about that but but you know he's just the person that is allowed to do that stuff um but i do think he does it pretty well uh if not in this film but in others uh and slightly in this film I think in terms of Gotham as a sort of a character, my favorite depiction is the animated series and and in Mask of the Phantasm, where because it's all animated, you can sort of bend it and flex it to whatever the story needs. Um, And and yes, I I guess it being a live action film and Nolan has said, you know, these films are uh, it's a it's a realistic, quote unquote, uh, universe with a with a extraordinary character at center being Batman. Um, so he's kind of leaning into marrying these up with real places. But I think Gotham's better when it's this fantasy space, you know, and and you can really you know make it huge mm-hmm. and intimidating and mm. and 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 it's uh, it's maybe a bit more expressive <laughs> than it is in this. Yeah, scene. I mean it's the gothic nature of Gotham, right? That's the that's the thing we respond to best. So I mean we've uh, we've established that Christopher Nolan then seems to not be that interested in Batman, not that interested in Catwoman, <laughs> not that interested in Bane, <laughs> not that interested in Gotham City. 
<laughs> not that interested in Talia. <laughs> what is he interested in? Is Cars. John Blake. <laughs> 70 millimeter films. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you ruined my good segue. Really oh, good sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Nolan um, loves John Blake and drawing the little white uh, chalk bat symbols, which Nolan that. actually <laughs> did draw on the set. <laughs> love it. Love it. So yeah, we've we've managed to to not really talk about Robin at all up to yeah. this point. Uh, a highly contentious moment at the end of the film. Um, I actually it's just, contentious the way that I think it was sort of cringeworthy. Yeah, <laughs> I liked it because. Uh, but then, bear in mind, I still like the Martha moment. Um, so Christ. maybe I'm just one for different. I like the Martha so. moment. I think this is dumb. You're high. <laughs> You're both high. <laughs> um, Look, I, we've, we've done it at length. Let's not do it again. Um, <laughs> I, no, I mean, I, I think, it, I think it's a nice, it's a nice way of uh, showing the nod to the role that he has played in this film, even if it's making it blatantly obvious when it didn't need to be. Uh, you know, it would have been better if his real name was like Dick or Tim. <laughs> sure. I mean, as it is, his name is Blake, which sounds a bit like Drake. And and like the 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 Robin that he resembles the most to me is Tim Drake because he's the guy who figures out Batman's secret identity and goes after Batman to you know try and persuade him to to do the right thing, kind of thing. So I, I you know I, as as a fan of Tim Drake, I I like that through line in him. Even though to be honest, I'm probably projecting onto that rather than it being anything I, I i don't believe that christopher nolan is a fan of early 90s batman comics or, or will have read a lonely place of dying so well um, that's why i think it's so interesting that he's made this choice because it feels like the most unknown thing to do right he doesn't give a fuck about the wider batman universe he wants all he cares about is his films that he's set in this semi-real universe or is it as real as it can be for batman to be real so it's fascinating to me that he makes what I think is a disastrous creative decision to include this Robin moment. <laughs> well, I think it's sort of he he doesn't really understand how to do references to the like nerdy shit people love. Right. <laughs> but also just don't do the you don't need the wink and the nod. It's 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 separate to your like in the film in the it, it yanks me out of the diegesis instantly. Yeah, it doesn't think, it doesn't oh, add fuck, anything to the film. film. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, it it doesn't it, it, I think it's such a it's such an odd choice and one that made me like screw up my face when I was watching that film. <laughs> Not for the first time. I remember just being like, oh, come on. No. Mm-hmm. So you could just show it. Like he obviously we all thinking, oh, cool. He's becoming a Robin or Nightwing or Batman substitute type character. Like we don't need that stupid line. Yeah, it's dumb. Hate I, it. I like it. <laughs> I like him getting the keys to the Batcave and all that ending stuff. I just, oh, yeah, it's yeah. thrilling. Absolutely. Oh, what's thrilling. your, your I, real name? I, is I, nice. I, 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 did, I wanted to talk about the end, the, the ending, ending in a in in a little while, but just kind of before that. I mean, do you think, uh, aside from being called Robin at the end, what do you think of John's role, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance, how that character works throughout the film? Uh, I think do you have any particularly strong feelings either way? I think it's a crucial uh, character um, because he is, as Sam was saying earlier on about uh, Selina Kyle getting to do the Batmaning that Batman can't do because Batman's doing something else. Um, uh, John Blake's filling that exact same role, but elsewhere. Um, he's a Batman surrogate 
Mm. Uh, and I mean, he probably is a better Batman yeah. than Batman in this sure. film. Yeah, yeah, he's he, he, does, he does heroic things and does detectiveing. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, uh, um, he even he's a better Bruce Wayne because he <laughs> he reminds Bruce Wayne that Bruce Wayne is not funding the orphanage that he's supposed to be. Funding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I really like that sort of intro to to John Blake and and then sort mm. of the intro to what bruce wayne hasn't been doing how he hasn't been keeping an eye on how wayne enterprises is doing and how he doesn't really mm. know how his charity uh, endeavors work uh and it, i thought that was quite interesting like seeing real the kids in gotham in the boys home uh, i sort of liked that bit the film doesn't really focus on it too much but that was like a nice window into some humanity in a nolan film mm. <laughs> and this and th- this is why as well i mean i i really think that the film is at its strongest after Batman dies in inverted commas. Like I, I actually genuinely think, and I think this is why I came out of the film on such a high about yeah. it because I think the very, very, I think everything it does with the very, very end, and it comes back to the thing that I think Nolan does really well with Batman is about making him a symbol and making him an icon and everything that, that people go and do as a result of Batman having been around and doing what he does. So sending John off to kind of to do that. And yeah, that, you know, genuinely, that I think the score again helps, yeah. but proper goosebumps yeah, it's with thrilling. him going to the Batcave. Absolutely um, thrilling. You know, I really like kind of that, you know, for all of the the way that you can you can poke fun at Michael Caine's overwroughtness in these films, but genuinely, it's a, you know, it's a proper character moment for Alfred to be stood there having to look at the grave of Bruce Wayne alongside the graves of Martha and Thomas. And okay, he does overcook the performance a little bit. That point, but <laughs> that's understating it a bit. It's fucking microwave bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you know that that is a, a a strong character beat for Alfred. It's silly Batman having a statue unveiled to him, but but I like it. I like the I like the renewed vigor that it gives Jim Gordon. It's you know it's it's such a such a great sequence to end the film with, and mm. the fact that I like the Robin line means that it's not even tainted by the bit that you all think is stupid yeah. either. And I think it's you know it's also it's really really rare in this genre to have an ending and it's an actual ending i mean okay it's doing the thing of you know john's going to go on to be the new batman or whatever in inverted comes but you never get the sense of this is setting up for another film to follow him it's like this is absolutely categorically mm-hmm. the end of this story mm. um i think probably i would rather maybe that in the cafe scene you don't know for definite i mean that i think definitely that was there. that was definitely a feeling i came out of is that we didn't need to see Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle sitting no. there like, hey, everyone, everything's fine. Like, What we needed mm. to see was Alfred's smile. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Al- Alfred's reaction would exactly. have been enough. But... That's all you need is the moment of recognition, and it's yeah. mad that he didn't have that. And I imagine, I, I would wager that it's something that was in the director's <laughs> cut, and then and then uh, maybe a, a, a studio hand on that. But I, th- I think um, that aside... Uh, I do think it's one of his great strengths as a filmmaker. He he knows how to fucking tie a ribbon on a film. He's so <laughs> good at it. I mean, the the you know the look at the end of the Dark Knight. It, it's absolutely thrilling, and it's not just Zimmer. Mm-hmm. He does do excellent work. Mm. Um, yeah, he he really knows what he's doing. It's a it's a proper 
concrete punch of an ending. I love it. Absolutely. You've actually, you've is, actually um... made me respect Christopher Nolan's craft, which is something I didn't expect to come out of this film, <laughs> thinking, like discussion <laughs> thinking, because I'm notoriously do not get on with Christopher Nolan. But you are, you are he correct. knows his film building blocks. Like mm-hmm. all of his, uh, you know, his towers he built always stand up because uh, he knows, <laughs> you know, what should be where. Sometimes to the point where it feels like you're reading a screenwriting book or like a mm. how-to guide. Um, but him and Jonathan Nolan, like all of their screenplays are very functional. Uh, and he's more interested in just the function of, of a film in, in that respect. He's a deeply sober man <laughs> it really comes across in all of his films i like did you um did you hear about the uh, what's the guy from phantom thread called daniel, daniel Day Lewis. Lewis? paul thomas no, no, anderson no. the um the character oh, oh uh, woodcock. Uh, reynolds woodcock yeah um christopher nolan's kids call him mr woodcock <laughs> because of Perfect. that film oh yeah, wow absolutely <laughs> amazing absolutely amazing christ what a terrible father he must be <laughs> Here's a fun bit of <laughs> trivia. I know someone who knows someone who went on Christopher Nolan's stag do and uh, they went to apparently, allegedly, went to a coffee shop and just drank loads of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> like it's perfect. He's the sort of man that I think like ha- has a, a glass of red wine at dinner and doesn't finish it. And then after... He'll sit in front of a fire and hold a whiskey because he likes to hold the whiskey in a glass, but never drink it and then go to bed. I think that's who Christopher uh, Nolan is. Four by candlelight. I would, <laughs> I would watch that movie. Um, just quickly, while we're on the subject of Robin, can I? I've been wanting to have this rant for a long time because. Christopher Nolan spent his entire time promoting this trilogy saying how basically he thought Robin was a really stupid idea and how Batman didn't need Robin. It was absolutely ludicrous that Robin existed. And that's why he would never be in a Batman film. And eventually he capitulated and was like, okay, I'll do my version of Robin. Mm. The problem with Nolan's trilogy is that it demonstrates at its most fundamental level why Batman needs a Robin. And it is because Batman needs to care about something like, he needs something to make him want to come home at the end of the day. It's certainly not going to be a woman, not in Chris's <laughs> Well, quite. And, like, he has that discussion with Alfred where, you know, Alfred's like, he's like, oh, you're scared I'll get hurt. And he's like, no, I'm scared you, you know, you want to die or whatever. And it's like, yeah, because Bruce Wayne in this film has no reason to live outside of his mission. Mm-hmm. And the reason Robin is needed as a sort of, you know, award for Batman is because you need Batman to care about what's happening in the world. Like, you need a reason for him to to be like, actually, I can't go on a suicide mission because if nothing else, this kid is relying on me. Yeah. And Nolan spends his whole time, like, he, to an extent, he puts Catwoman into that role in this film in that he's like, oh, actually, I care about Catwoman too because sexy Anne Hathaway. But really... What Batman needs is, you know, something he can love and someone he can care for who doesn't fulfill any other role or, you know, who who doesn't demand anything of him other than to be there. And those these films spend so much time trying to paint a picture of a world in which Robin is not necessary. And yet 
all they do is make it clear that if Batman didn't have Robin, he would either die or retire. And that is what yeah. happens in this film. It's fun because uh, the creators of the character Robin have the last laugh over Christopher Nolan there, right? <laughs> like, like you told us that we were wrong, but we were right all along. Like, yeah. you have, you, he needs to have that. The character requires it. And if you uh, don't include it, then something will feel as if it's missing or you have to include it in a different way. Yeah, because um, you can see Nolan really clearly thought about what, yeah. what being Batman would be like and like took it to its logical extension in a world without Robin. Mm. I would love to see a Batman movie include Robin, like unironically, unsatirically, mm. just have Robin in the next film and see how it goes. Yeah. Genuine trivia question, because um, I'm sure you won't know the answer. So guess... Bearing in mind that Batman first appeared in uh, Detective Comics 27 in 1939. Yeah. When did Robin first appear? Oh, I'm going to guess... Well, now the quiz element of me is making me think that I should should guess later. So I will... No, I should guess earlier, so I will guess later. Oh, shit. No, which way around is it? I'm going to say 19... Nine, I'm going to say 2006. No, I'm going to say <laughs> I'm going to say 1951. Sam, do you want to okay. have a go? I, I sort of guessing a lot. Uh, I feel like in the 60s TV show, uh, there's a Robin in that, so maybe Robin might be closer to the beginning of the TV show. I'm going to go for 1960. Why not? I know the answer, so I'm not going to guess. Okay. But, but well, you, you've kind of proved my point in terms of people think of Robin as this kind of later addition to Batman. Robin first appeared in Detective Comics number 38 in April 1940. 11 go. issues after Batman first appeared, there they added go. Robin. Oh, wow. So uh, Robin has been an intrinsic part of Batman pretty yeah. much from the point at which they began to nail down what all the intrinsic parts of Batman were. How fascinating that so many filmmakers have chosen to sideline what yeah. appears to be an intrinsic character. Uh, was Robin well, from that period? Was he next. like always in the comics, uh, or did he like jump in and out? Um, so, from first appearing in 1940, uh, the Dick Grayson version of Robin is there constantly until the early 1980s when he becomes Nightwing oh, wow. because he's grown a bit older. He almost immediately gets replaced by Jason Todd. Uh, Jason Todd gets killed off in the late 80s, and there is a period of maybe about six months to a year where there's no Robin, and that's where Tim Drake comes along, and Tim Drake is basically a Batman fanboy who goes, I know that you're Batman and that Jason Todd was Robin and that he died, and you're going nuts without a Robin. You need a Robin. Let it be me. Eventually, Tim Drake does become Robin. Um, Ever since then... I mean, there's, there's been other iterations, and Damian, what Damian Wayne, Batman's Batman and Talia's son, is the current Robin. Uh, there's pretty much, all, yeah, the, you, you're looking at periods of maybe a maximum of, of about a year at a time when, for specific story reasons, there isn't a Robin. But otherwise, there's always a Robin, basically. That's really fascinating. Oh, as Simon was saying, like how filmmakers have just chosen to ignore uh, that <laughs> character. Even well, the animated think... series doesn't introduce him until later in the run. I think we can blame a lot of that on the 66 TV show, which made their relationship 
yeah. and the character Robin in particular, so like campy to the point where they added female characters to oh no that was the comics wasn't it they introduced batwoman yeah yeah but like there was there were lots of worries especially in the 60s that like the portrayal of batman and robin was too homosexual basically it was all frederick worthen's fault yeah (laughs) yeah um and i think the legacy of that is why people think oh we can't have robin that's stupid Right. Yeah, and I, and I think I think because shoes. because Tim Burton puts such a stamp on Batman, mm. um, you know, in terms of uh, people really saw that film as as a template to follow in lots of ways. Tim Burton had very much decided that he thought Robin was silly and wasn't needed, and famously, the only Batman comic that uh, Tim Burton had read uh, was supposedly The Killing Joke, and yeah. that doesn't have Robin in it. So uh, it's not that I don't think it's that Batman doesn't have a Robin at that point. It's just that in that particular story, that Robin's nowhere to be seen. Um, so yeah, I, I genuinely think that Batman eighty nine had you know Batman eighty nine basically made it okay to do Batman without Robin. And ever since then, I know the movies, you know, flirted with introducing him in returns. Um, then you had the Schumacher films, which obviously did him quite successfully in Forever. And <laughs> then again, the brand, I think, got tainted by the fact that the film that's got his name in um, is is widely renowned as the wor- not only the worst Batman film, but one of the worst superhero films. But I mean, so. also, realistically, like, that's not Robin, is it? That's Nightwing. If we're, you know... Robin is a kid, Nightwing is the the adult. Yeah. I I would really like to see them have a go at doing Damian Wayne at this point. I yeah. think the character's now established enough and is interesting enough. And I really never thought I'd say that back in like 2006, whenever it was, that he was first introduced and you thought he was <laughs> going to be around for a very short while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's am- it's amazing that the character's existed for that long and is now such an intrinsic part of But of yeah, and, and himself, Robin, you know. Robin as like a hyper-competent mercenary, like, you know, child psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what that that in your That will fit in your film without feeling too campy, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's part part of what makes Damien fun is that he he disagrees with Bruce far more um, than than other versions of Robin. You know, he's not just a mini Batman. He's kind of he's a mini Batman if Batman had actually been raised by the League of Assassins. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose we'll have to wait and find out if uh, if Matt Reeves has any interest in the character of Robin. Yeah. In twenty twenty one. Christ. <laughs> it's getting further and further away. <laughs> I keep forgetting that that's actually still happening. Uh, oh, yeah. When the Dark Knight Rises was announced and and this character John Blake, which is such a boring character name, was revealed. <laughs> it's like, a classic Nolan name. Was there, did, was there like talk in the comics community about who this guy could be? Did we sort of think it was a secret Robin, stealth Robin? <laughs> I I remember. I remember there were hints that like. Oh, maybe maybe this John Blake guy because John Blake is such an obviously like shit name. People are going, yeah. oh, maybe maybe John Blake like the same way in Star Trek Into Darkness they were like, oh, is John Harriman actually? Oh God, actually <laughs> can And it turned out it was. They were going, yeah. Uh, spoilers, spoilers for a bad Star Trek film. They in the <laughs> same um, in the same way people are going like, oh, apparently Marion Cotillard. Cartier might be uh, might be Talia and and John Blake might actually be a version of Robin to the point where when it actually those twists actually came in the film I sort of rolled my eyes like oh. right so is that unimaginative then okay yeah 
Yeah. Hmm. So, it, you know, it was floating around. It was not a huge surprise to anyone. Sort of annoying when filmmakers go out of their way and the film itself for over two hours. It's like, they're not this person. They're not this person. They're not this person. Oh, they are. Yeah. <laughs> so horrible with Into Darkness on that one. Just absolutely <laughs> awful. That's the most galling. I mean, I didn't give a fuck about the film, but it was just like galling to be told something and then just be absolutely yeah. lied to after you've paid your 10 quid. Like, just unbelievable. <laughs> Such a dick move. Uh, Look forward to us doing that podcast. When we're out of comedy <laughs> just let me loose, please. Or as if you're ever going to run out of comic book movies. <laughs> when we run out of good comic book movies, we'll move on to bad Star Trek movies. <laughs> of which Finally. there are plenty to choose from. <laughs> uh, does anyone have anything else to input? Or have we, uh, have we, we done that to death? We have had a chat about Bane, but we haven't spoke about Bane Knitting? Knitting? <laughs> So in the courtroom scene, Bane is in the background knitting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is a direct moment. reference to A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. Uh, right. But also on the... I was, a, uh, I was, I was doing my, uh, my research for this. I watched the special features on the, on the Blu-ray. And there's a 13-minute uh, making of, which has a different shot of Bane knitting on a rooftop, which Amazing. if you Google image search, that's the one that shows up. So I, like, there's a version of this film where Bane is knitting in a lot of scenes. <laughs> <laughs> just walking around Gotham's rooftops knitting. <laughs> it would have been nice if he turned up with like a bubble hat or something. <laughs> I love it when the guests do more research than we do. <laughs> <laughs> so when we have guests, you mean? Yeah. I just sort of love that. Like Chris Nolan, I, it's such a weird thing uh, to pop in there. And, and I love that it's it's in there. It's also like when um, Alfred and Bruce Wayne at the beginning of the film um, say, oh, he's a character not to be trifled with. And they keep using the word trifling in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I've I've googled Bane, Google image Bane knitting, and what's great is if you scroll down past the description of that, you start to get some lovely knitted Bane toys and a knitted Bane mask that someone's made. Absolutely <laughs> delightful. <laughs> if that film has given us nothing else, it is that really glorious, really silly character, just constantly yeah. funny. I think it's, that's why the film is nothing... so much fun to watch again and again and again. Like that character is so entertaining, and as we said, it's a shame that he has a crap death. He deserves better. <laughs> Bane deserves better. Yeah, bring yeah. back Bane. He... Oh, <laughs> also, speaking of Bane, just very quickly, I just want to mention how much I absolutely adore what I like to call the "Eat the Rich" montage. We're all getting chucked <laughs> out of their hotels, and all of the working class people are popping the champagne. I was. Apps and just uh, it raptures watching that scene. It's All of their clothes so are being great. poured down the stairways in every apartment block. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, again, that's that's another of those scenes where that's that's presented in the film as you're supposed to think something bad is happening here. Yeah, exactly. That's because Christopher Nolan, it on. Christopher Nolan, clearly a one percenter himself, going like, yeah. "Oh God, imagine if the poor people finally came for us." <laughs> like that's his big anxiety. Imagine if they were allowed in my house. <laughs> I'd love to see yeah. what a Christopher Nolan directed installment of the Purge series would look like. <laughs> 
that does ultimately lead yeah. to that giant uh, brawl on Wall Street, though, which has, uh, again, on that same feature, they say there's uh, 1,200 extras, which is insane. It's so huge. Yeah. <laughs> Mad. Mega. Has anybody got anything else before I do an awkward segue into the last segment? Do, do we talk about Hans Zimmer and the score? Uh, yeah, it yeah. does its job. There's a Bane theme. It's really, really fucking good. It sort of makes I, the I've, whole trilogy. Yeah, I, I expected a bit more enthusiasm from, from Simon over that. No, I love it. Cool. I really love it. Um, I think Zimmer, a great really, guy. Well, uh, I think uh, regarding the score, it's important to note that this is the first Batman uh, solo Zimmer score. He's finally nixed James Newton Howard. And I do think that Newton Howard is is missing from this. Um, but we do have a fun new Bane theme, which is good. A lot of the score is uh, greatest hits of, uh, of Begins and Dark Knight. But um, the new stuff is there and, and really thrilling. And I think the lack of Newton Howard makes Zimmer just really really go for it in its in his biggest way possible um and i think the film deserves it i think it's got the spectacle to match so why the fuck not we we talked about it before when when talking about the fact that you know he's pretty much the only good thing about man of steel um and yeah. we did talk about him on on dark knight as well but like hans zimmer has taken has has worked on films with batman and superman two characters who have got two of the most iconic themes in certainly in superhero cinema but it's in superman's case and possibly in batman's case in cinema in general yeah and he has done new themes for both characters that are really striking and memorable yeah and that's no mean feat no and they're simple they're simple and effective you know um they they do their job you know he's part of the Rich tapestry of being able to sing the character, uh, the character's name along to the theme, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Always yes. really fun. Um, yeah, no, he's. I mean, he's a very talented man. He's been very well successful done. with the DC films, but then the Amazing Spider-Man films he also scored were uh, not hugely memorable themes. <laughs> True. Yeah, I can't remember a thing about the music in those films. To be no, nothing. Just um, in Amazing Spider-Man Two, there's the uh, electric eel rap the, uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, the, the dubstep. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was trying something clearly match the quality of the film. Yeah. Exactly. Following exactly. orders. Yeah, I think I think he succeeded admirably on, on, on that score. Representing what's on the screen. That's his job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all in all, Dark Knight Rises, it's I mean it's it, it's just it's categorically not the Dark Knight. And I think you, you, you can't look at it as a kind of uh, a worthy follow up of everything that the Dark Knight did so well. Um but there is a lot to enjoy in it. Yeah. Whether, whether you're laughing at it or with it, um, <laughs> in the in the case of Bane, um, it's you know I I don't think it deserves the reputation of being the really weak final part. Of the I trilogy. I will say this: aside from the fact that it is super long, I prefer it to Batman Begins. So do I, absolutely. Yeah. I think Begins has got some big old holes in it, um, and while Rises is a mixed bag. Uh, I do think uh, that, for the most part, it does things that surprise me in an entertaining way, in a way that Begins 
doesn't. I find it begins to be very dry, and I don't think there's mm-hmm. much that's dry about Rises. <laughs> it's not a dry riser. Something quite <laughs> infectious about watching uh, the just the enthusiasm of a lot of the people on screen in in The Dark Knight Rises, like. Like Tom Hardy is having such a good time. Like his first fight with Batman, where he's just kicking the shit out of him. <laughs> it's it's so well done. Like people are they're bringing their A game to everything, even though the, you know it's a hokey screenplay. Uh, so yeah, it's a really it's a really easy watch. It's an easy two hours and forty five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I would happily sit through the film again right now. I I, yep. I think it's a really fun watch. But yeah, does it doesn't really add up uh, when you think about it too much (laughs) and one more thing i'll say about it is i'd completely forgotten that ben mendelson was in it but with with three films this year i think that makes him a strong contender to get in the hall of fame in in this year's cuppies it's kind of a crappy character but he has that great scene where um tom hardy puts his hand on his shoulder and says you know do you feel in control (laughs) do you feel in charge which i think is the best line of the entire film (laughs) what uh, also that's uh, I, i think that moment includes a really fun choice from hardy that feels like a very hardy choice. Like it will say probably in the script, he puts his hand on his shoulder yeah. and then he says, do you feel in charge? And he doesn't do what any other actor do, which would be to clamp your fist down on his shoulder. He sort of delicately rests it, palm side He rests side the up. back of his hands, Absolutely. doesn't he? Absolutely yeah. hilarious. What a silly choice. <laughs> it's ridiculous, glorious. Wonderful. It's just before quite a gruesome death. Like not yeah. that we see it, but you sort of hear it and you know what's about to happen. Yeah. yeah. Tom Hardy Hall of Fame contender as well absolutely what a guy (laughs) okay so that was The Dark Knight Rises Uh, I think this is one where the podcast will have just about come out shorter than the film but maybe not by much um but before we go, um, we are obviously with the the departure of Joe and the changing format. Uh, we're changing things up a little bit at the end of episodes as well. So uh, for the moment, at least, um, we're uh, we're not doing the pitch. The pitch is in kind of semi-retirement for the moment. It may come back in the future. Uh, what we have got instead, uh, after a kind of successful trial run in episode 100, uh, is a quiz. It's not okay. I want to just correct a misconception here. It's not really a quiz. It's more of a little game. Oh, um, okay. A game. It's a game that will be quite familiar to anyone who has listened to Radio 4. Uh, okay. It's my own original oh my spin. Now, I just want to check is anyone here uncomfortable doing a Bane voice? Absolutely not. <laughs> anyone? <laughs> no? Okay. So, I'm going to get you three to play a game that I have called Just a Bat Minute. Oh, God. <laughs> and I would like you to, the best of your abilities, recount the plot of Dark Knight Rises without hesitation, deviation, or repetition. <laughs> You also have to do it in your best Bane voice. <laughs> so let's see if we can get through 60 seconds of that. We're gonna, I'm going to start with Seb. Um, if you want to buzz, we don't have buzzers, just shout your own name and I will stop the clock. So is everyone okay with that? Yes. Sounds like a delight. Okay. I will be playing the uh, Nicholas Parsons role in this. With hopefully uh, less grating a manner. <laughs> so, okay, Seb, I'm going to count you down and I want you to start, okay? Okay. Okay. Three, two, one, go. The film opens <laughs> with Aidan Gillen as a CIA operative who has been handed some prisoners to take away in a plane. <laughs> While they are flying the aircraft, 
The men in the plane, one of them is revealed to be B, played by Tom Hardy. They cause the... Thing that, that, that is, is definitely that. a hesitation. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to throw it over to Simon. Eight years after Harvey Dent has died, Batman has disappeared into a position of reclusiveness. <laughs> Fortunately for Batman, uh, there is a... <laughs> no, that wasn't air. Uh, it's going over. <laughs> Sam, you can I'm have it. I'm pretty sure there was repetition of Batman. <laughs> 44, repetition 44 of seconds. Batman. <laughs> Sam, off you go. Batman comes out of retirement to fight the criminal known as Bane. <laughs> Unfortunately, his mother's pearls have been stolen by a woman. <laughs> Batman proceeds to find the That's pearls you, we got to a minute. the woman at a party for the rent. <laughs> <laughs> that was one minute. Sam, you had control when the clock stopped, so I'm declaring you the winner. <laughs> beautiful stuff. Well done, beautiful stuff. That's basically the film, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some other stuff happened at the end. <laughs> well, there we go. So, um, James, I presume that's going to be the exact same game every week, and we just have to keep carrying on with the plot. <laughs> yeah, until you get to the end of the plot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, okay, so that was that was definitely a way to end this. Almost as good an ending as the film itself has. Um, thanks ever so much, Sam and Simon, for joining us on this episode. Uh, is there anything either of you would like to plug or tell people where they can find you online? Oh, God, I haven't got anything to plug, but you can, if you have any interest in following me on Twitter, you can find me at Cy Renshaw. Uh, and you can follow me at Sam underscore Clements, and you can listen to the at 90 Min Film Fest pod, which is at 90 Min Film Fest on Twitter, and search 90 Min Film Fest on, uh, on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. We have a Batman film coming up in a future episode, Ooh. but as of yet, we have not covered a superhero film. You do also have a live show coming up, don't you? <laughs> we have a live show coming up, which may or may not have happened by the time... This, when is this pod going out? And <laughs> uh, any day now. Okay. A couple of days. So. Uh, you can come and see the podcast live at the London Podcast Festival on the 14th of September. We're doing a live show uh, which includes a screening of a film. I don't know how you guys feel about this film. Uh, Safety Not Guaranteed, Colin Trevorrow's directorial debut. Love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun sci-fi comedy which is unusual because it actually premiered at Sundance it's an indie movie um, but it's uh, yeah it's got a it's got a lot of heart and uh, and it's a little bit different there it's set Colin Trevorrow up to take over the Jurassic World franchise and that is with <laughs> uh, special guests Helen Zaltzman and Martin Ostwick who are veteran podcasters and I think it would have been announced by now Colin Trevorrow himself is going to be there Ooh, so you wow. can see the Trev as well as lovely and Helen and Martin. So come along to that. Uh, tickets are £9.50 for a film and a podcast recording. It's bargain. a bargain. <laughs> Excellent. Good plugging. Uh, we'll plug our own stuff. You can hear more episodes of this show at cinematicuniverse.com. We've got a lovely new revamped, recoloured website uh, to tie in 
uh, with our 100th episode celebrations and just generally freshening things up. You can obviously hear us on Acast, subscribe uh, there or on Spotify, on Apple, wherever else you get your podcast. You know how these things work. You can buy our merchandise, T-shirt designs and other things at redbubble.com. Links over on the website. And, of course, you can support the show at patreon.com slash cinematicuniverse. Yeah, I just quickly think we should congratulate Joe as well on the birth of his daughter, Peggy. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> she, she's not called Peggy. Um, but yes, uh, congratulations to Joe, the, the quitting <laughs> Believable. Unbelievable. And, and devoted family man. Uh. Uh, you can get in touch. Uh, you can you can give us congratulations to pass on to Joe if you want. If you haven't already congratulated him on Twitter uh, at cine underscore verse, and you can send us an email uh, to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Um, I recently discovered that emails were getting a bit buried in a in a deluge of of PR emails in that inbox, but I'm trying to actually sift through them. So send us some messages for the show, and I will actually read them and re- and read them out on on future episodes. Uh, that's all gone on long enough so I'll just say uh, thank you for listening um, and we'll see you again for our next episode so goodbye goodbye Goodbye.